Turn with me, if you will, to the place where this week's Torah portion begins. It is, in fact, the um, book of Genesis. We're, uh, we're, we're closing in on the end of the, the book at this point. Genesis chapter 44, verse 18. And it's also right in the middle of one of my favorite cliffhangers in the entire Torah. And uh, this is the one where uh, the uh, brothers are uh, standing before Joseph. They don't know who he is yet, but they're fixing to find out. They're scared to death, basically. And um, we're going to see what I refer to as one of one of my favorite incidents. Uh, this is the place where Judah mans up. So uh, I guess it's fair since it was a cliffhanger. The back up just a couple of verses and remember where we are. What's happened, of course, is that the brothers have returned home. They uh, well, they've returned to uh, uh, to Egypt. They've uh, now appeared before. Um, their brother, they don't know it's their brother Joseph, he's the number two man in uh, all of uh, of Mitzrayim, and uh, they uh, essentially uh, have brought their brother with him then they they, uh, they paid, and they took their, uh, their food that they wanted to head home with, and uh oh they got caught, there was a, a, a silver uh, cup that was put into the, um, the sack of Benjamin the youngest, and um, they basically said, hey, well, we didn't steal it, but whoever has that thing, if it's found in one of your servants' um, bags, then let him die, and we too will be your Lord, my Lord's bondsman. Okay, you said it, here we go. And they found it, and every man opened his sack. Sure enough, there it was in Benjamin's, and uh, they rent their clothes, and uh, they they ladled their asses, they laded their asses, and they headed back into town. And sure enough, uh, now they're standing before Joseph. What have you done? He says, "Don't you know I can de- indeed divine?" Uh, and Judah comes forward. Now here's the the speech that invokes the cliffhanger. What can we tell you? Is essentially what he says. How can we possibly clear ourselves? You know, you got us. Uh, Elohim has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, here we are. We are uh, my Lord's bondsmen, both we and also he in whose hand the cup was found. And um, then Joseph responds by saying, well, far be it from me that I should do that. Just the fellow in whose hand the goblet was found. In other words, Benjamin. He'll stay with me. As for the rest of you, go on in peace back to your dad. Now, at this point, the Torah portion begins in verse 18, and it says, Vai Yigash, and came near Judah. And here is uh, what I think is one of the most stirring speeches in, in the book, in terms of a man being a man and doing what he has promised to do. And I will contend that uh, although he's been working up to it, at this point, Judah essentially shows that he is worthy of being in the line of kings. And even, of course, as we know, and that would mean the line of uh, King David and the Messiah. Oh, my Lord, he says, let your servant, I pray you, speak a word in my Lord's ears. Don't let your anger burn against your servant, because you are, you know, you are just like Pharaoh. My Lord, if you recall, asked his servants, saying, Do you have a father or a brother? And we said to you, we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one. His brother's dead, he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. And you said unto your servants here, Bring him on down to me, that I might set my eyes upon him. And we said to my Lord, Well, you know, the lad can't leave his father, because if he should leave his father, his father would just plain die. And you then said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. And it came to pass, when we came up unto your uh, thy servant, my father, in other words, when we asked Dad, here's what he said, and we told him your words, he said, Go again. We're out of food, right? Got to buy us some food, so buy us a little food. 
And we said, well, no, we, we can't go down there because if our youngest brother's not with us and we go down, we will not see the man's face unless our youngest brother comes with us. So your servant, my father, then told us the following. You know that my wife bore me two sons. Now, by the way, I suspect this is about the place where Joseph begins to come apart. You know that my wife bore me two sons. We know who the oldest of those two sons is, and we know who he's talking about. One went out from me. That would be the guy he ta- he's talking to, and he doesn't know it yet. And I said, surely he's been torn to pieces, and I haven't seen him since. So this is um, Judah relaying the words of his father, Jacob, remember. So if you take this one from me too, and any harm befalls him, you will surely bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now, here's where Judah personalizes it. He says, now therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad isn't with us, seeing that his soul is literally bound up with the lad's soul, and this this terminology is interesting, folks. It is the same terminology we see with Joseph uh, with with David rather and Jonathan uh, when they are youths and um, they are they are literally bound together. His soul is bound up with the lad's soul. It'll come to pass when he sees that the lad is not with us. When Benjamin is not not home, he will just plain die. And your servants will, in fact, do as he said. Will bring down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. Because, now here it comes something Joseph also does not know. And it speaks to the integrity of the man the man that is now standing before him, Judah. For thy servant, meaning me, Judah, thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father. And here's what I told him. If I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now, therefore, let your servant, I pray you, let me, in other words, stay here instead of Benjamin, the lad. Let me be a bondsman to my Lord. Let the lad go up with his brethren. Because how could I possibly return home to my father if he's not with me? Lest I look upon the evil that shall come upon my father. Can you feel it? Joseph is at the very edge. He is seeing a man that he didn't know. 20 plus years ago, two decades have passed, and his brother Judah has grown up. And not only has he grown up, he is a man, and he's standing there proving it. And he says, I, I will be surety for my brother. I made a promise to my father. I will keep it unto my dying day. Here I am. I will stand in his place. Kind of like a kinsman redeemer, if you think about it. Then Joseph could not refrain himself. (laughs) That's probably an understatement, even for Scripture, folks. I love it. Joseph couldn't handle it. He couldn't restrain himself before all of them that stood by him. And he cried out, and he said, Every man, I need to clear the room. Get every man out from me. And while there was no man standing with him, in other words, no men of the house, it was just he and his brothers, Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud. All of the house heard, the Egyptians heard, the whole house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph. Now notice, they have not used his name. How does this guy know his name unless, well, he ain't kidding. Ani Joseph, does my father yet really live? And his brethren just plain couldn't answer. You can imagine, they're speechless. They are standing there dumbstruck. 
because they were affrighted by his presence. Joseph then said to his brothers, Come on near me, I pray you. Oh, they did. They came near. And he said, Ani, Joseph, your brother, the one that you sold into Egypt. And now, don't be grieved, nor be angry with yourselves that you sold me down here, because Elohim was the one that really sent me, as it turns out, before you to preserve life. Now, I'll posit this verse, because there is so much in this chapter that is just so absolutely historic. Um, one of the things that I've heard uh, taught about this, I like it, and I think it's pretty clear, at least from Scripture, that this is a true statement. This is the first recorded moment in human history, the first written record that we have of any human being forgiving another. Joseph has forgiven his brothers. Don't be grieved. Don't be angry with yourselves. You sold me down here, but hey, you know what? It was Elohim that sent me here before you to preserve life. Now, these two years, he says, he's going to tell them something they don't know yet. These two years, the famine has been in the land. They know that part. There are still five more years to go in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And Elohim has sent me ahead of you to give you a remnant on the earth to save you alive for a great deliverance. Now, this is another one of those uh, scriptural statements that I love because it's um, typical of Scripture to the extent that if you read it, folks, there is truth in here on multiple levels. He has sent me before you to save you alive for a great deliverance. Well, if you think about it, there's at least three obvious ways that uh, this is true, all of them described in that one verse. One. It's their very lives themselves, they and their children and their wives. They will be saved alive as opposed to dying in the famine. Okay, second, the great deliverance. Well, looks to me like he's referring to, at least um, most eminently, although not in their lifetimes, the exodus, the exodus of Moses, the mixed multitude, coal Israel. And guess what? Everything else that follows all of us who are spiritual and physical descendants, and or both, which is most likely the case for almost all of us, well, we have been saved alive along with it as part of that great deliverance. And you know what? Yeah, there would not be a greater exodus had not that happened first. So this uh, verse also kind of is a harbinger to that. Now, it was not you, he is repeating this, making the point, it was not you that sent me down here, hither, but Elohim. And he has made me kind of like a father to Pharaoh. In other words, I'm the number two man here. And he has made me lord over all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He trusts me. I am in this position of authority and responsibility. So listen what? You hasten. You go up to my father and you say to him, here is what your son Joseph says. Wow. Can you imagine? Well, we're going to find out how those words are going to hit him. Here's what your son Joseph says. Elohim has made me Lord of all Mitraim. Come on down. Don't tarry. And you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near unto me, you and your children, all your children's children, and your flocks and your herds, and everything you have. And here I will sustain you. For, you know what, there are still five years of famine to go. Lest otherwise you come to poverty, you, your household, and all that you have. Behold, your eyes see, and as do the eyes of my brother Benjamin, that it is my mouth, the mouth of Joseph himself, alive, that speaks unto you. Now, you shall tell my father of all of my glory in Egypt, tell him all that you've seen, and uh, you hasten and bring my dad Don back down here. 
And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and he wept. Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brethren, and he wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. Like I said, I love this story. Just imagine, folks, the excitement that's being described here. The report was heard in Pharaoh's house. This is the kind of thing that spreads pretty quickly through the house, right? Hey, Joseph's brothers are here! Can you believe it? And Pharaoh was well pleased. He and all of his servants, they like this guy. This is good news. Joseph's brothers have returned. There is a reunion. Wow, ain't it a glorious day? Pharaoh then says to Joseph, Tell your brothers, this do you. Laden up your beasts. Go, get yourself on back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come on back down. Come on unto me and I will give you the good of the land of Egypt. You will literally eat the fat of the land. Now, you are commanded, he says, this do. Take your wagons, take take for you wagons, they'll be your wagons, out of the land of Egypt for your little ones, for your wives. Bring your father and come on down. As far as your stuff's concerned, don't worry about it, because all of the good things of the land of Egypt are, in fact, yours. Well, says the sons of Israel, notice the terminology, the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons. According to the commandment of Pharaoh, he gave them provision for the way. To each one of them, to all of them, he gave changes of clothing. But to Benjamin, he gave five changes of clothing and 300 shekels of silver. That's a lot of stuff. And to his father, he sent in like manner ten asses laden with the good things of Mitraim of Egypt, and ten she-asses laden with corn, bread, victuals for his father along the way. They were loaded up. So he sent his brethren away. They departed. He said unto them, See that you don't fall out along the way. Now, that's kind of interesting. I, uh, As I was reading at this time, I, you know, I've read that, and it's kind of like, All right, y'all have a good trip, right? See that nothing, you know, don't let the bed bugs bite, whatever. It seems like a throwaway line. Well, there's no such thing in Scripture. And so this one struck me this time around. His, his brother was sent away, and they departed. He said unto them, See that you do not fall out by the way. Why? I, I don't know that I have an answer, but I at least have something that I think fits with it. We're going to see in about two or three verses. So see if this doesn't resonate a bit. Because maybe answers a related question. All right. So they all went up out of Egypt. They came unto the land of Canaan, unto Yaakov their father. And they told him. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen this, right? They told him, saying, Joseph is alive. Say, what? And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. It's like, bang, bang. Here's You thought that was shocking? Yo, not only is he alive, he's the big man, uh, you know, the uh, BMOC. And his father, his heart fainted. Because he didn't believe it. And I can't blame him. They told him all the words of Joseph. So this is the thing that's interesting. This is why I, I suggest there's a little bit about this that may kind of stick out. They told him all the words of Joseph, which he'd said unto them. All right? Is he buying it? Something here, though, resonates. And uh, the, the sages have talked about this, and I do think it's, it's worthy of uh, pondering. When he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father revived. Something about the wagons caused Joseph, that, that Joseph caused to come, something about that, in fact, convinced his dad. That really is Joseph. 
Now, here's the question. What was it? Okay, we don't know, and we're not told. Scripture doesn't share that with us. But I do think it's interesting, and I have a strong suspicion. The more I think about this, the more I think this is one of those things that, that just, uh, the fact that we're not told is kind of fascinating as well. You know that Joseph was beloved of his father. I'm sure they shared lots and lots of stuff. There have to be some things that Joseph is thinking, and by the way, he's had plenty of time to think about it, right? Just in the year or so that uh, the boys have been gone, the young men at this point, and uh, that uh, he knew they were going to come back, he's had a chance to think about it. How am I going to convince my father that I really am who I say I am? How's he going to, for crying out loud, how's he going to believe me? What do I know that only I know and only he knows that when he sees it, he'll say, Shazam! That really is Joseph. So, whatever it is, he's given it some thought, and the wagons are the key. When 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 Yaakov saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Now, that makes me go back to that line. See that you don't fall out, by the way. What's that about? Well, it seems to me that if, in fact, he sent some specific things, some kind of a coded message, if you will, that he knew his dad would figure out, he wants the message to be intact. He wants the wagons to be intact. Whatever it was that he put in the wagons, uh, maybe the wagons were a rainbow-colored wagon set, I don't know. Whatever it was, that was the thing that Yaakov saw, and he said, that's Joseph. Oh, that really is Joseph. And it hit him. And notice this. It's Yaakov, their father, again. He doesn't believe. The spirit of Yaakov, though, when he saw the the wagons, he revived. And then guess what? Right? What does it say in the last verse of chapter 45? And Israel this time. Yep. The man that is the spiritual progenitor of all of the tribes of Israel. He said, quote, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I'm going to go see him before I die. So, chapter 46, Israel took his journey. Notice it's Israel. He has been revived. Remember how for for 20-some years, Scripture, and I always make this point because it fascinates me, he says, uh, Joseph refused, I mean, Jacob refused to be comforted. His, he, he believes, he's, he says he believes, surely my son has been torn in pieces. Joseph is not. But he refused to be comforted. Well, I'm thinking, now he is. His spirit is revived, and he is, in fact, Israel. And Israel took his journey with all that he had. He came to Beersheba, and there he offered sacrifices unto the Elohim of his father Isaac. What do you bet they were joyful sacrifices, folks? Israel, uh, Elohim spoke to Israel in the visions of the night. Now, notice this. This is interesting, too. What does Yah say? The man uh, whom he has renamed Israel. What does he say? Yaakov, Yaakov. Answer, Hineni, here I am. And he said, Ani, or actually, Anki Ha'el Elohi. I am the El, the El of your father. Don't be afraid to head on down into Egypt. Because there, right, we've heard the promise. Now it is. It's coming to pass. For there will I make of you a great nation. I will go down with you into Mitraim. 
and I will surely bring you up again, and Joseph shall put his hand upon your eyes. So what's he saying? When the time comes for you to pass, to sleep with your fathers, I'll be with you, and it will be your son Joseph who will in fact put his hands on your eyes. So Joseph rose up from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Yaakov their father and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him, that Joseph made sure uh, had some kind of a message for him. They took their cattle, their goods, everything they'd gotten in the land of Canaan, and they came down into Mitraim, Yaakov and all of his seed with him. And we're going to get a listing here, which is kind of uh, kind of interesting. Uh, and it also is a the kind of record that we're going to see throughout from here, uh, throughout the Exodus and the rest of Torah as describing this mixed multitude. Right now, it's the uh, the sons of Israel and their wives. So he's got all of them. His sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters, his sons' daughters, all of his seed, all of them he brought with him down into Mitzrayim. These are the names, it says, of the Benai Israel who came into Egypt. Yaakov and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben, Hanach, Palu, Hesron, Carmi. The sons of Shimeon, the number two son, Emuel and Yamin and Ohad, Yakin and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanitish woman. The sons of Levi, or Levi, Gershon, Kohath, Merari. The sons of Judah, now we know the first two here, Ur and Onan, then Shelah and Perez and Zerah, but, as it tells us, Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hesron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Yalil. These, it says, are the sons of Leah. So, Yaakov's first wife, Leah whom she bore unto Yaakov in Padan Aram with his daughter Dina. All of the souls of his sons and his daughters were thirty and three. The sons of Gad. Now we're going to go uh, essentially wife by wife here. The sons of Gad. Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishva, Ishvi, and Bariah, and Sarah, their sister. The sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malchiel. These, it says, are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. So she is Leah's handmaid. She gave them uh, him, uh, th- her, of course, to Yaakov. And uh, she, and uh, well, he bore sons through her that are attributed to Leah, who gave um, that wife to her husband. These souls, 16, she bore unto Yaakov. Okay, the sons of Rachel, Yaakov's wife. We know the two names, Joseph and Benjamin. And unto Joseph, there in the land of Mitraim, were born two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These then are all of the sons of Rachel, who were born to Yaakov. The, son, the souls totaled fourteen. The sons of Dan... Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Yazil, Guni, Yezer, and Shelem. These then are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to, gave to Rachel his daughter, so that's her handmaid, and she bore unto Yaakov a total of seven souls. 
So all the souls that belonged to Yaakov, one way or another, through his four wives, that came into Egypt, that came out of his loins, in addition to Jacob's sons and uh, Jacob's sons' wives, so there were people who did not come out of Yaakov's loins, those were the wives of his sons, all of the souls were 66. Sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, two souls. The souls of the house of Yaakov that came into Egypt, therefore, the total, um, threescore and ten. He sent Judah before him unto Joseph to show the way down into Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. So Judah goes ahead, they enter up in, uh, they end up in Goshen. Joseph then, it says, made ready his chariot. Now this is the Rashiism that uh, we see uh, with Pharaoh in the Exodus too. I think it fits here as well. Because why does it tell us this, right? You know, you figure Joseph's number two man in all of all of Egypt. He says, "Hey, you know, uh, uh, fire up the fire up the the Bentley and bring it around front, right?" He doesn't have to have uh, go down and, and and mess with the horses and and bridle them up and all that kind of jazz. But it says Joseph made ready his chariot, and I got a strong suspicion that means literally what it says. Joseph says, "My dad's coming. I'm gonna be right there. I'm fixing my own chariot," and he did. He went up to meet. Israel, his father, to Goshen. He presented himself unto him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a, uh, for a good long while, making up for 20 plus years. Israel then said unto Joseph, so this is Israel now speaking to his son whom he has not seen for two decades. All right, <laughs> I could die now. Since I have seen your face, then you are yet alive. Makes sense. Joseph then said unto his brethren and unto his father's house, I'll go up. I'm going to go up. I'm going to tell Pharaoh. And I'll say to him, my brothers and my father's house, all of whom were in the land of Canaan, they have come here unto me. And the men are shepherds. They have been keepers of cattle. They brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. And it will come to pass, he says. Now, this is kind of funny. And um, I'll just read it because you, you tend to you want to scratch your heads a little bit. But... Um, in a way, it makes sense. It's it's kind of humorous, if nothing else. It should come to pass when Pharaoh calls on you and he says, Hey, what, what do you guys do for a living? What's your occupation? You shall say, says Joseph, Your servants have been keepers of cattle from our youth even till now, both we and our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, because every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Okay. Now, in English, you see, we say, is, it, is he saying, don't tell them you're, you're, uh, you're goat and, and uh, sheep guys. Tell them you're cattle guys. You know, like if this was Texas, and if you're a, if you're a cattle guy, that's okay, because cowboys are respected, but uh, goat herds and, and shepherds aren't. Or is it possible, because sometimes the word cattle is used to describe any of the edible animals, the kinds of animals that men keep, uh, oxen and cattle like um, uh, cows, but also the term could and often seems to include goats and sheep. So it's possible that um, this can be read in one of two ways. I have always tended to read it the way that, um, well, the way it seems to me that that it's intended. Don't tell them that you're really goat herds and and shepherds. But I think, in fact, uh, he is perhaps suggesting that because shepherds are an abomination under the Egyptians, uh, maybe they'll just kind of leave you alone. So I'm not sure. All right, then Joseph went in and he told Pharaoh, and he said, My father, my brothers, all their flocks, their herds, all that they have, they've come out of the land of Canaan. Behold, here they are. They are in the land of Goshen. From among his brethren he took five men, and he presented them unto Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh said to his brothers, What do you do? What's your occupation? (laughs) And they said unto Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. Okay, he's just finished saying, Shepherds are an abomination. Huh. Okay, they said to Pharaoh, To sojourn in the land we've come, because there's no pasture for your servants' flocks. The famine is really nasty. It's sore there in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray you, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, and he said, Your father, your brothers, they've come unto you. The land of Egypt is here. It's laid out before you. You, your father, your brethren, they can dwell there. The entire land of Goshen. Just basically what he's saying, the fat of the land is laid out before you. Have at it, guys. In in the land of Goshen, let them dwell. And by the way, the land of Goshen was considered to be kind of the primo part of all of the land. If you don't any able men among them, well, then make them rulers over my cattle. So Joseph brought in Yaakov, his father, and he set him before Pharaoh. So Joseph set his father before Pharaoh, and it says, Yaakov blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh then says to Yaakov, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Yaakov says unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojournings. And Yaakov blessed Pharaoh, and he went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And Joseph, it says, placed his father and his brethren. He gave them a possession there in the land of Egypt, the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. So the the fat of the land is, in fact, laid out before them. Everybody is making true to their word. Joseph sustained his father and his brethren and all of his father's household with bread according to the want of their little ones. So Joseph, too, did exactly as he said he would and should have. And there was no bread in all of the land because the famine was really nasty. So that the land of Egypt, Mitzrayim, and the land of Canaan languished by reason of this famine. Joseph then gathered up all of the silver that was to be had in the land of Egypt. All of the money is what some renderings say, but it's really all the silver, because silver and money are identical. Same Hebrew word, as you know, kasef. Because the corn which they brought, uh, which they bought, well, they needed they needed all the money that they had to buy that uh, to buy that food. So Joseph brought the silver into Pharaoh's house. So essentially what they did is they took all the money that they had in all of the people's houses and all the land of Mitraim, and they bought food with it, and it ends up in Pharaoh's hands. Now when all the kasef was finally all spent in the land of Mitraim and in the land of Canaan, so basically all the money is, is shown up in one place, Pharaoh's stronghold, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and they said, Hey, come on, we're starving. Give us bread. Why should we die in your presence? Because our money faileth. Now, here's one of those places where I, I I think it's important to point out, this is kind of an, at least in terms of modern English, this is not a great translation. We tend to think the money fails. What does that mean? You know, like hyperinflation, like what we're going to see in, in America when the money fails. There, There's more than one way that money can fail. Money can fail because people realize it's worthless and they throw it in the streets. And they can print it without limit. That's not what we're talking about here. This is real money. This is real silver. Why does it fail? Well, it turns out fail is the troublesome word. If you look that Hebrew word up, it's uh, afas. 
Okay, ki because ki afas kasef. So what what has uh, what has the kasef done? The silver it has kafa. Uh, it has afast. This is the first use of this word in the scripture, and as a matter of fact, this um, this story is the only time this word is used. But um, what does it really mean? Well, it, it turns out it, it only appears in this place in the Torah. It is used in, I believe, the Psalms, and it shows up in one or two other places in the, in the Tanakh. But as far as Torah is concerned, it's here. And it literally means the money's gone. Okay? It has ceased. Ain't got no more. The cupboard is bare, right? You've seen the, the beggar turns the pockets inside out, and there's nothing here. And that's what it's saying. It's not that the silver has failed. It's they ain't got any of it. So it failed. They failed to have any. So Joseph said, all right, what I'll do is I'll take your cattle instead, your animals. I'll give you bread, food for your cattle if you don't have any more silver. So they brought their cattle unto Joseph. Joseph gave them bread in exchange for their horses, and for their flocks, for their herds, their asses. He fed them with bread in exchange for all of their cattle for that year. Now, when that year was over, they had a problem, right? Got no more cattle. Now what? They came to him the second time, and they said unto him, oh, we're not going to hide from you, because we can't. We're, uh, you know, we're on uh, tough times here. How all of our kasef, we've long since, we're out of that. You knew that. And now the herds of cattle, they belong to you too. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord except for our bodies and our lands. So why should we die before you eyes, both we and our land? So buy us, in other words, buy us as bond servants and our land in exchange for food, for bread, lechem, and we and our land will be bondsmen unto Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate. So, Joseph bought all of the land of Mitzrayim for Pharaoh. So he's basically, first the money, then the animals, the herds, everything else they had, finally them and their land. He bought it all. The Egyptians sold. Every man sold his field because the famine was sore upon them and the land ended up belonging to Pharaoh. As for the people, he removed them city by city from one end of the border of Egypt even to the other end thereof. Only the land of the priests did he buy not, because the priests had a portion from Pharaoh. So they were basically on uh, Pharaoh's um, uh, welfare system. Uh, and he, uh, they ate the portion which Pharaoh gave them. Whatever they sold, they didn't have to sell their land. So Joseph then said unto the people, Behold, I have bought you today. You, I bought you and your land for Pharaoh. So here you go. Here's some seed. This is seed that y'all can plant, and you will, in fact, sow the land. Now, it'll come to pass, at the end of the ingatherings, of the time of the harvest, you give 20%, a fifth, unto Pharaoh. Four parts, four out of five parts, you keep. For the seed of the field, for your own food, for the um, households, and for food for your little ones. So, essentially, now think about it, folks. This is one of those things that always kind of fascinates me. Here's Pharaoh. Now, by the way, Pharaoh seems to have a pretty good head on his shoulders, as you know. He has picked a wise man to, to rule over it. Uh, now he is wealthy in terms of having planned and reaped the rewards. And uh, he owns literally all the land, and he owns all the people, their slaves. How does he treat his slaves? Well, let's ask ourselves, how does the IRS treat its slaves? Okay, 40%, 50%, half? Uh, you know, if you're lucky, um, and that is if you're not a, uh, an illegal invader, in which case you get uh, you get money, uh, like um, Pharaoh's priests. These are, the, I guess, the invading priests of the uh, 
the other gods coming into the, the land. But isn't it funny? Pharaoh and um, these people that are slaves to Pharaoh, he owns them on their land. They pay 20%, one-fifth. Wouldn't it be cool? Can you imagine a nation that only charged its um, its slaves a 20% tax today? Certainly not uh, not this one, not uh, no longer Great Britain. It, it's it's fascinating to do the comparisons. I remember when Ronald Reagan used to say, well, you know, the, the uh, God only required a tithe of a tenth. Why does Big Brother want so much more? And the answer is, well, Pharaoh only took two tenths. And here we are in a, in a place where uh, people would be thrilled if they had... Uh, you know, had it like the slaves under Pharaoh. Okay, well, they said in response to that, you've saved our lives. Let's find, let us find favor in the sight of my Lord. We will be your bondsmen. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt unto this day that Pharaoh has a fifth part. Only the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. The last verse in the portion not quite the end of chapter 47, says this. And dwelt Israel in the land of Mitraim, in the land of Goshen. Now, Israel in this case, is it talking about Yaakov? Well, yes, but it's also talking about Kol Israel, all of those that came from his loins and all of his son's wives. They dwelt in the land of Goshen. They got themselves possessions there. They were fruitful, and they multiplied exceedingly. Interesting phraseology, isn't it? Be fruitful and multiply. First commandment in the book. And that's what they're doing in the land of Goshen. And with that, folks, the uh, portion ends. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come to judge Babylon. Shabbat Shalom, folks. What we are going to do today is talk about, um, ultimately, I would say, one of the most difficult issues that has been front and center lately. And uh, it has to do with one of the most blessed stories. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite stories in uh, in the entire, uh, especially in the book of Genesis. But uh, in the book, there are a number of them, of course, but this is a great story. The Parsha is called Vayigash. It starts in Genesis 44. And as I've mentioned many times, uh, and as we went through last night, I don't intend to repeat the whole teaching or the whole uh, reading, because it is such a wonderful one that um, I just encourage folks, if you didn't hear it, take a listen to that or read it for yourself. But essentially, it's the story of what I refer to as when Judah mans up. And, uh-oh, gee, right there. Uh, that turns out to be offensive to a lot of folks. But if you think that's offensive, folks, just wait. So um, what I'm going to do is to suggest that is part of the story. That is a, a big part of the elements, part of the reason why I think it's so wonderful. I'll even suggest I think Judah genuinely surprised. Um, you know, you might even say he could have shocked his brother Joseph. Because Joseph, I don't think, expected Judah to have matured to the point where he was worthy of being the progenitor, the, uh, the sire of the line of kings. And indeed, what we've seen over the last couple of portions is that is the case. The line of David comes from Judah, as does the Messiah himself. Now, what I want to begin with, therefore, is is the elements of this story that set up some of the other pieces I want to talk about today. And, and I'll, uh, I'll begin with a disclaimer here in a second, too. But let's talk about the things in here that are so prophetic. It's part of the reason why I love this story. Um, as I mentioned, one of them has to do with Judah manning up. He honored his oath 
to his father. Judah honored his oath to his father. Now, when I put it that way, just think about the implications. <laughs> Doesn't that kind of sound really prophetic? Okay, how about this one? Um, when the uh, truth came out, and the brothers now learn who Joseph is, that he's the number two man in all of Egypt, his response, you sold me into slavery. Yeah, you did. Don't sweat it. Elohim, in fact, is the one who had this thing worked out. He sent me before you, it says, to preserve life. So that is one of the key elements. It's one of those things I want to make sure we have on the table as we think about how all of these many pieces today are going to fit together. Preserving life, a plan. He, You could say it. He knew the end from the beginning. Scripture says it. We ought to say it too. Uh, how about this prophetic element of the story? It was to save you. And ironically, that is the royal you, right? It's to save you all. His brothers, he's talking to, but it turns out it's his brothers, his brothers' children, and their children's children's children, and us. So it applied then, it applied later, it applied during the Exodus, uh, arguably it applied during the time of the descendant of that fellow Judah who manned up here, the Messiah himself, and yeah, guess what? It applies still to a greater Exodus that we know prophetically is yet to come. A great deliverance, as Joseph put it there. All right, and how about this one? Remember the prophecy to Abraham that through you all the families of Haaretz of the earth will be blessed? Well, we see that here. Remember the remark in this particular part of the scripture? Um, after Pharaoh is hearing what's going on and his servants and the whole house, they're all thrilled. They hear about the reconciliation between Israel, the twelve sons of Israel, and the fact that the plan of the Creator is starting to work out here and they're seeing it. They're thrilled. All of them are thrilled. Even these pagans. Huh, I guess that too is prophetic, isn't it? How about this? When Yaakov, their father, and remember how uh, we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks, Yaakov is referred to, uh, he is the only guy in Scripture who is really given a, re, a, a renaming by the Creator. Yaakov, your name's going to be Israel from here on out. And yet, not only is he still referred to as Israel, or as, as Israel, but also as Jacob. Matter of fact, in this portion, in the very next place after the verse I'm reading or talking about right now, Yah himself calls him, and what does he call him? Yaakov, Yaakov. Answer, Hineni. Huh. So, Jacob is unique. He still gets called Yaakov, even after he's renamed. Sometimes, many, many times, in fact, in the very same verse. What's interesting to me, prophetically here, is we see that there is a, looks to be like some kind of a message that's sent, but Yaakov gets it. Hey, my son Jacob, my son Joseph, rather, whom I thought was dead. I didn't really, really, really ever 100% believe it, maybe, but now I know. I will go and see him before I die. So, his ruach, his spirit, was revived. And I will suggest, because scripture right there says it, it's Israel. Isn't that neat? It's Israel's who ruach, which was revived as this plan is made manifest. And then, what's the final element that we see in this Torah portion? Right before the uh, beginning of the next one, it says, the sons of Yaakov, of Israel... They were there in the land of Goshen, and what? They were fruitful, and they multiplied. Now, that's kind of cool, because it turns out that was the very, very, very first commandment in all of Scripture. It was given to the animals, and then it was given to Adam, Adam kind, be fruitful and multiply. And uh, here's the interesting thing, or at least poignant, maybe, is a good way to put it. We know what followed, too, don't we? Uh, I guess this is where I return to my uh, nerdy engineering background and say cycles. Cycles in history, cycles in prophecy. They were at kind of a high point right there. 
And there's a low point coming, cruel bondage in that same land, when another Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. So the point is, and this is where I want to begin at least today, we're going to branch off and go in a whole different set of directions. Um, this part of the story that we're hearing is, so it's a bunch of things. It's uplifting, it's inspiring, it's even amazing, and yet, since it was the high point, it means, you know, human nature, human history, cycles repeat. From here on out, uh, out it's downhill for at least quite a while, arguably, um, maybe thousands of years even, with some ups and downs in between. Now, it leads me to where I'm going to go first and uh, literally focus today. What I believe have uh, I've in fact been led to talk about. And um, as you know, I, I uh, don't often say this. I will occasionally say, I believe the Ruach has told me, say these things or focus on these things. No doubt about it. I always, before we begin these, these teachings, I always pray about it and um, continually even. And not only this time did I get a uh, what I think was some direct information, uh, you know, uh, things to look at. Usually, in, in my mind, that ref- that comes in the way of various scriptures to think at, think about, look at, and talk about, and so forth. But also, um, it was kind of weird. I had a number of witnesses, multiple witnesses, more than two or three even, that one way or the other, sometimes for good or sometimes for ill, were inclining me to talk about these topics. One topic in particular, but you're going to see how they all connect. Okay. So, it starts with, uh, I guess you could say this is one of the witnesses, an easy one, the Hoff Torah reading that goes with this week's Torah portion. And it's one of those that you have to kind of look at and say, why does this Hoff Torah reading uh, go with this Torah portion? Now, I will say, you know, having seen what I'm getting ready to talk about, it was perfect. The Hoff Torah itself is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. And um, if you look at chapter 37, you'll see there's two main stories. Both of them are fairly famous. The first one is, dim bones, dim bones, the dry bones of, uh, of coal Israel, all of Israel. They're going to walk around. And uh, then the second part is the famous prophecy that's called the two sticks. And we will come back to that because the two sticks is fundamental to uh, what we need to talk about today. But first, in order to set up the two sticks, we've got we to talk about some of the other things. But I will suggest this, before we go into detail on Ezekiel 37, that both of those prophecies, the dry bones and the two sticks, in my opinion, and I know there's the 70 AD amillennial preterist crowd that will disagree, can't see it personally, never have been able to, um, I will contend those things are among a number of prophecies in Scripture. Yeah, there may have been uh, partial fulfillments or intermediate fulfillments, but certainly they have not. And I repeat, underscore, not been fulfilled, not the way Scripture is really clear that they are going to be. And that'll be clear as we read through it. I think it should be obvious. However, this is vitally important to understand, that the background for the two sticks and the elements that we want to talk about today are fundamental to everything we need to understand. So here comes the warning, the disclaimer, the adult content yeah, I'm going to talk about some things that are going to upset some folks. Uh, how about I put it in some of the terminology you may have heard Paul use. Uh, what we're going to get to is not for milk drinkers. Um, and many will be offended. Yeshua used that language on a number of occasions. We'll touch on some of that. Um, if you got itching ears, probably time to, uh, as we would say in radio, turn the dial. And finally, um, if you're looking for fables... Paul mentioned that in the same uh, letter to Timothy about itching ears. If you're looking for fables, look elsewhere. No, this is not going to be one of your warm and fuzzy Christmas messages, folks. And, uh, well, you know what? Uh, It still may end up being a Christmas message because um, 
let me put it this way. Um, what you're going to hear today is going to run afoul of the whore church. Oh, yeah, there you go. That's the rest of the disclaimer. I'm going to use a terminology that I will contend and prove to you The Scripture uses over and over and over and over again, and it is offensive to many people. Well, as a matter of fact, Yeshua said it was going to offend a lot of people. He was going to offend a lot of people. And indeed, that's why they hate him, and that's why the whore church doesn't like him, doesn't want to admit him into their whore church. Oh, can you really say that, Mark? Are you dissing Jesus? Well, Paul wrote it. He said, beware, they're going to come to you preaching another Jesus which we have not preached. If they come doing that, don't listen to them. I'm afraid you might well put up with it. Well, Paul was right. They did. People still are. And it's still divisive. So, here comes the rest of the disclaimer. Now, this is not going to surprise regulars. Uh, there may be some folks that will forward this teaching, and I hope that that's the case. And I pray that you'll listen to it, and that you won't have itching ears, and that Yah will, in fact, give you eyes to see and ears to hear. And that you will be like the Bereans and search out the scriptures, search out the truth from his word yourself as written. Put away the crap that you heard in Sun God Day School and in all of the Christmas stories that have to do with, the, you know, Mithra's birthday and so forth. Honestly, there is so much, and I'm going to use that word, crap, that people have been fed. Uh, yeah, I quote this one all the time. Uh, Jeremiah said it this way. Many will come to me in that day. Oh, no, that was Yeshua said. Many will come to me in that day. Uh, and isn't he saying the same thing as Jeremiah? Isn't that funny? Saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? What was the answer? Depart from me. You who are Torahlessness. I never knew. You, you who, uh, you know, undermine my teachings, my instruction. I never knew you. Jeremiah said the nations will come and they will say we've inherited lies from our fathers. Crap from the whore church. Now, it doesn't get used in that way in that case, but trust me, we'll go through the pieces. I'll prove it to you. It gets used a whole bunch of other places. So here's what I was going to say. Uh, many um, will know, if you've heard me probably even once, but certainly several times, that I will try as best I can in my human frailty to uh, study, to read, to expo expose, espouse, and yeah, to teach his word as written. And explicitly, that means what Deuteronomy 4.2 and 12.32 and the very last commandment in Revelation, the whole book says, don't add to nor subtract from. I will contend that is the essence of the whore church. They add to what they don't think he got right, and they subtract from the things that they really hate that he wrote. So that is why I will use terms like markology. And occasionally, if I'm going to say, okay, here's me connecting the dots, your mileage may vary. You don't have to connect the dots the same way if you don't see it. And, you know, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make him drink, and you can't give people eyes to see. It comes from him, as Scripture says, or, you know, they may not get it. And indeed, he promises many will be blinded, that they will have inherited a spirit where they prefer lies to the truth. You're not going to reach them. You just got to get used to that. I, I got used to that a long time ago. But what I will do is connect the dots, and when I'm extrapolating a bit or suggesting that this seems interesting to me, um, understand the term that I will use there is markology. In other words, this is the way I see things that are what look like they come directly from Scripture, but if you can't see it, I'm not going to force you to. Either you see it or you don't. So I'll just encourage you, be like the Bereans, study to show yourself approved, rightly divide the word of truth, see if they don't make sense. And obviously, as Yeshua pointed out, many are going to be offended. And if folks are offended, they tend to kind of turn off their logical faculties, and they just plain won't see. 
Hosea said something about that too, right? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I'll reject your children. Oh yeah, and I won't let you be priest for me either. Uh, that too kind of resonates with the whore church concept that we will come back to. All right, so I mentioned that there are a whole lot of things that are offensive to folks, things that I will suggest are easily, and I mean easily, demonstrated from Scripture. And um, as a matter of fact, you have to lie about them to pretend that they're not demonstrated in Scripture. We talk about most of them um, relatively frequently. All of them have been talked about as we go through the Torah. But here's just an example of a few. So if, if this is shocking to you or new to you or offends you, well, brace yourself. It's going to go uh, far, far deeper from here. So number one, obviously, the things that are offensive to folks includes his Sabbaths. His Sabbaths, that would be his seventh-day Sabbath that he said to do what? Keep forevermore throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. Never, ever, ever in Scripture did he ever change it. The whore church admits they changed it. They even are proud of it. Apostolic succession. Hey, we rewrote it. It's not scripture. You can read some of the greats, the giants, like Cardinal John Gibbons. He says, hey, you protesting Catholics, you accepted our authority to change scripture. So whether you know it or not, you're a protesting Catholic. Because he, meaning the creator, even if they don't know his word and they tried to hide it, he didn't change it from his Sabbath day. Sabbath means his seventh day, period. Okay, His Moedim, his appointed times, his set-apart days, his holy days, his feasts, his fasts. He said, same thing, keep these throughout your generation and all your dwelling places. There are three in the spring, three in the fall. They prophetically, literally outlined the coming of the Mashiach. Everything that Yeshua did had to do with his Passover and the things that fell during that time and thereafter on the 50th day, uh, Shavuot and so forth. All of those are things we talk about all the time. Understand, as I go through here, there are going to be things that are his, his Sabbath, his feast, and things that are not. So it's his feast and things that are not his feast, his Sabbath. Well, uh, since we're talking about this season when there's so much paganism, Christmas is a particularly divisive example. There's nowhere. There's nothing, folks, in human history that happened on December 25th that wasn't associated with some paganism that is directly associated with anything from, well, the Mashiach. It's just not. He was born at a whole different time of year. Shepherds weren't out watching over their flocks by night, in the middle of the dark of the uh, longest night of the year. But that's not what tradition would have people believe, or indeed what they have been taught, whether it has any basis in Scripture or not. Well, the other one, of course, the divisive example, Ishtar, Ishtar, Astarte, Ashtaroth. Yeah, take the most important event in all of human history, Paganize it, name it after a pagan fertility goddess, celebrate it with the blood of uh, children being used to dye eggs, and with fertility symbols like bunnies and eggs. How's that for offensive to him? Any wonder the word whore church should literally leap off the page at you. Okay, that's just one. Here's a couple of other elements. Food. What's food and what's not food? Oh, you want to start an argument? Tell somebody you don't want a nice piece of piggy bacon. All right, um... Oh, yeah, and they'll quote Paul, even though Paul never ate the bacon himself. Isn't that funny? Uh, item number three, and this is a big one, um, marriage and not marriage. Not marriage. Well, that's an easy one. If it's an abomination in the Scripture, like a man lying with a man is with a woman, what will the whore church do? What will those who worship at the same altar do? What does the pagan church of another god, uh, humanism, you name it, the WEF, what do they do? They will take something which is abomination. They will license it. They'll cram it down your throats, teach it to your kids. And 
even if it includes a death penalty, they'll tell you, you've got to be tolerant of it. No, you don't. All right? Now, there's another element about marriage, of course, and that is what is marriage and, and what is not marriage. Well, they, they've already taken things that are uh, not marriage and called them marriage. The other thing that they will say is not marriage, but is, oops, the fact that a man may have more than one wife. Now, I will suggest this is another one of those so-in-your-face obvious examples. It is an indisputable fact from Scripture. And if anybody tells you differently, I'll be as kind as I can, they're a liar and the truth is not in them. They're simply not willing to look at what it actually says in genuine print. Now, for those that want to be picky, and I'm one, I will suggest, understand, that a marriage is between a man and a woman, not a man and another guy with a strap-on, or somebody who cut it off, or is taking drugs, or just dressing up to pretend. Uh, Maybe he can even be the first lady first, and then the first... uh, Never mind. Okay, the point is, a man may have more than one marriage is the proper way to put it. Each marriage is between a man and his wife or wives. They become, if you will, uh, other helpers or sister wives. I don't care what terminology you use, but the point is, Scripture is very clear. As a matter of fact, the literal foundation of Israel, as you know, is Yaakov, who ended up with four wives. Some would say two plus two. Whether they are free or bond concubines, the, the terminology in Scripture actually uses both names. Uh, Bilhah and Zilpah are called both concubines and wives. And one last thing on that point is that um, not only is it clear, not only is it permitted, but there are cases, and I can describe to you and show you in Scripture, won't do it today, but if there's questions, I'm happy to go through it. I'll give you my email in a minute here, too, so I'm happy to answer questions later. But there are at least three specific places, cases, that you can show from Scripture where a man can be required not, may, but is required to take more than one wife. The, uh, the obvious example is what's called the law of the leveret, but there are other cases. Paul even wrote about them. What? Yeah, it's not that hard to find. It's just that you have to be willing to do a little bit of what? Study to show yourself approved, be like the Bereans, and don't get wrapped up in the lie that Paul did away with the law, or that his master did away with the law, or that even law is the right translation. All right, again, none of that should uh, surprise uh, regular listeners here or indeed anybody who is a Berean. Uh, I've had this discussion, I guess, dozens if not hundreds of times over the last uh, couple of decades. And um, many folks that I've never talked to before will say, oh, of course, obvious. Uh, That's obvious, Mark. Uh, You know, I study scripture. You can't deny that. Any of those things. Well, that's true because it's clear. Now, that leads me to um, one of the things that I, um, I was thinking about this. I sometimes have used this as a joke line. But in fact, it's, um, it's not a joke line, it's true. And it was used by the Mashiach himself. And if you understand the context, it's important. This is John chapter 6. So if you want to get a, a, a kind of a look at where I'm going to go today with this um, exposition of the whore church and how we got here and where we're headed and so forth, uh, let's start with John chapter 6. Because essentially what this is, is the really, really difficult teaching. Yeshua says it's a difficult teaching. His disciples say it's a difficult teaching. I tell you, I am the bread of life. The lechem. A chayim, right? Uh, your ancestors ate man in the wilderness. They died. But the bread that comes down from Hashemim, from the heavens, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. That's me. Here's how he put it. I am Ani, would be, right, Ani Yahuwah. That's what Yahuwah said. His name, what is the name of the real Mashiach? Ani Yahushua, the salvation of Yah. Literally, the Torah made flesh. 
I am, he said, and that offended some of the people then too, the very fact that he would say, I am, in that context. I am the living bread that came down from Hashemayim, from the heavens. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Oh, he argued, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Why? Because some of them at least recognized a little bit of the Torah that hadn't yet been done away with it. Some of them were working on it already. The whole church has been working on it. So is the whole synagogue. How can this man give us flesh to eat? Because you do not eat human flesh, right? That is explicitly forbidden. I mean, think of it. The real simple way, what's food? Well, if it's meat, if it walks around on two legs or four, it needs to have, everybody, two characteristics, right? What are they? Has to chew the cud, has to have a split hoof. Check out your toes. You don't have a split hoof. You are not food. Is this shocking to anybody? You're not food. Don't eat people. Okay? And you don't chew the cud either. That means that you don't have multiple stomachs and so forth. Um, how can he do that? I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. What? The blood is, is life? What does the scripture, Torah, tell us over and over again? The life is in the blood. You do not have life in yourselves. You don't. You do not have life in yourselves. We are deserving of death and will. All right. This is a hard teaching, though. Okay. What do they say? Um, and he gives some more exposition. But hopefully, this is one part that at least a little bit uh, the whore church got right, even if they will then deny all the rest of it that makes it essentially contradictory. These sayings, he said, he taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. So, a lot of his taught ones, his matit yahoo, the taught ones of yahoo, they heard that, the disciples, and they said, whoa, this is a some hard teaching. Who can accept it? And in fact, scripture tells us a lot of them left. This is too hard. Knowing that his disciples were grumbling about it, he said, does this offend you? Are you offended? Does the truth offend you? Right there, folks. The whole church is offended by the teachings of the Messiah. Why? Because they are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He didn't change them. He said that on day one, his first public address, Matthew five seventeen to 19. I'm not changing one yoder tittle, not the tiniest part from the Torah or the writings or the prophets. Uh, most translations will say just the Torah or the prophets, but basically what we would call the Tanakh, the, the Old Testament, even that name is offensive because it implies that he did when he didn't. Okay? What if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit, the Ruach, is what gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. These words that I have given to you are Ruach, and they are Chaim. They are Spirit, and they are life. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now, this is a little bit like those lines that are said elsewhere, right? You have to have eyes to see. If I had given them eyes to, 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 to see, maybe they would have asked them. I would have had to heal them. This is one of those little mystery paradoxes in Scripture. You have to have eyes to see, and it turns out that we have to ask or know enough to ask to be given eyes to see and ears to hear so that we're not like the idols that have eyes but do not see and ears that don't hear. Okay, you ask the Twelve. You don't want to go away, do you? Okay, who, where do we go? You are the one that has the words of eternal life. So this is part and parcel of what it is that I'm going to suggest is offensive to some, but we had better learn to just, you know, deal with it. As a friend of mine likes to say, put on your big boy panties. Uh, nowadays, you're not even allowed to say that, I don't think. That's uh, offensive to the whore church and to those that worship at the same altar. Okay, so where are we then? I mentioned John 660, the hard teachings. And let me put it this way. All of those things that I listed above, 
uh, his Sabbaths, his Moedim, uh, what's food and what's not food, what's a holy day and what's not a holy day, what is marriage and what is not marriage, none of them, none of them are even remotely hard teachings. They're easy. You can demonstrate them from Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you read it honestly, you can't help but say, huh, he didn't change it. He said he wasn't going to change it, and you know what? He didn't. Not once, nowhere does he change them. Now, if you've got a Bible that says, he did away with the law, he went and had a pig sandwich, uh, go get yourself another Bible. Find one that's better. Or learn to rightly divide the word of truth for yourselves and recognize when you're being lied to. Again, Paul warned about that, too. So, here is the warning. I hope it's clear by now, and I've already probably uh, gone enough places that you can tell exactly where I'm headed. We're going to talk today about the whore church. Oh, yeah, and the whore synagogue, too. I want to be an equal opportunity offender, because both the whore church and the whore synagogue, both Ahola and Aholaba, both the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah, both of them, Ephraim and Judah, all of them are still in exile. They were kicked out. Shalak, that's the Hebrew term, uh, put away for cause, and we're still in exile. What's the solution? Well, he's told us that too. Come out of her. If we know that we're in a whore, if we know we're serving another god, touch not the unclean thing. Come out of her. And um, by the way, I'll mention this. I, I couldn't help but think this is almost humorous because I hear people saying this is one of the witnesses that I that I heard. More than one of them, as a matter of fact. And uh, um, that's just recently, certainly over the years that I've used the term whore church, I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, oh, that's offensive, the whore church. What, you mean taking money to preach lies and bring people into bondage to another god? Uh, that's not offensive to you? Oh, oh <laughs> you wouldn't call that the whore church? He does. He says it's harlotry. He says it's idolatry. He says it's deserving of death. I would say that's offensive to him. Matter of fact, he's pretty clear on it. Why do you think he exiled those who did it? So the warning, um, if the word whore church offends you, let's try some other words that you'll find there in that book if you've got a halfway decent one. How about harlot or harlotry? How about whore of Babylon? Anybody seen that one in there? And remember just in case uh, people want to get uh, self-righteous. He also, uh, I can look at places like Mark chapter 7, Matthew chapter 23, lots of other places. Yeshua had some pretty nasty things to say about the Pharisees, a.k.a. what I refer to as the whore synagogue. But he had different names. He called them everything from vipers and hypocrites, remember? In Mark 7, he calls them hypocrites over and over and over again. To uh, sons of hell, you make those new disciples even more of a son of hell than you are yourselves. And he called them, most Christians in the whole church have even heard this, he called them the synagogue of Satan. So they're the synagogue of Satan, but not us. We're the body of Christ. It's just joined to a harlot. No, no, we won't say that, no. Anyway, that does not seem to bother the whore church too much when uh, somebody else is called a whore, but uh, certainly uh, no. Uh, not the whore church that changed times and seasons, that did away with his instruction, that replaced it, that knows what's better than he did, what he actually wrote. Uh, sometimes I will be even more sarcastic, and I'll say, you got this guy with the funny fish hat, based on Dagon, who likes to call up God on a, the red phone right there in the Vatican and tell him what he got wrong today. Fish on Fridays? Nope. Wrong day. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, would, it would be humorous, folks, if it wasn't so life-and-death-dealing. So... Um, here is where I'm headed, and I'm going to contend that uh, what we're going to talk about, and indeed we have already begun, is uh, not only central 
It is vital. I'll even go so far as to say I don't think. Now, I know people can come via all kinds of different routes. I certainly did. Almost every person who has come to an understanding of the truth has gotten there by a slightly different path than the one that worked for me or for my loved ones or for people that I've met. Uh, dozens of different ways. Some via his name, some via the Sabbath, some via an understanding that Jesus Christ was never, ever, ever once... Not while he walked the earth in human flesh, not once did his mama or anybody that ever knew him, ever, call him that. Not for uh, 15 full centuries after he had gone on. Isn't that amazing? And yet, they'll tell you there's only one name under heaven and earth by which you can be saved. Well, that's not what Joel says. Isn't that funny? And I know of Jews who have been highly offended and turned away from quote-unquote Christianity. Because they're told that Jesus did away with the law. And they say, well, wait a minute. If that's true, then that guy couldn't possibly have been the Messiah. You know what? They are right. How do we reconcile that? Answer. By coming to a knowledge of the truth. By studying, being like the Bereans. All scripture, we'll come back to that, is uh, Elohim breathed and suitable for correction and instruction in righteousness, which is what? Torah obedience and so forth. So, What I'm suggesting, and I'm going to say, um, we'll make this case. And if I don't, ask questions. But I hope I will. Pray that I will. These things are central to our understanding. Things like who we are, where we are now, how we got here, and perhaps at least as important, where we're going and how we're going to get there. Ultimately, and I've said this, but it bears repeating, this is the whole story of Scripture. It's the part where he tells us he knew the end from the beginning. It's right there in Genesis. It really begins to to go into warp speed in Genesis chapter 3. Then there's Noah, right? There's the story of Babylon. There's the story of Abraham, where we begin the idea of patriarchy. Ooh, there's another one of those words that's offensive to the whores that run this entire society today. They spit the word out. Patriarchy. No, we're egalitarians. I am woman, hear me roar. Mother nature is supreme. Gaia worship. How dare you bring that old male god, patriarchal god of the Old Testament. You see, that's kind of sort of where the whore church got us. They'll say that they're at odds with one another, but ultimately I'm going to contend, no, they're still all worshiping the same God, whether they know it, whether they'll admit it or not. Just different kinds of whoring for different kinds of filthy lucre. All right. He knew the end from the beginning. We mentioned it. Uh, Those stories from Genesis. Um, Noah, Babylon, Abraham, Yaakov, his four wives. Okay, well, we gotta, we gotta soft pedal that. I watched a debate this week with one of these sons of Satan who's actually saying that, oh, okay, you had all these, Abraham was an adulterer. And Gideon, he was an adulterer. And Moses was an adulterer. And, uh, uh, Jacob was an adulterer. No, folks, there's no polite way to put it. Bullshit. Okay, the creator of the universe says these are the men of faith. Abraham is the example of faith. I like to joke about it. Look up um, the word faith in scripture. Look up the word that means loving kindness in Hebrew in scripture. You see his picture, right? He is the founder of our faith. We are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by faith. The line of Mashiach comes through him. How dare this uppity, damned, ignorant hypocrite from the whore church 
say that these men of faith, who knew more about his word than this guy ever did, while he's making it up, he even had the the chutzpah later on to say, I don't have to read what adultery is in scripture, it's in my common sense Bible. Good grief. Okay, so, yeah, I'll admit, I read that kind of stuff, I see that kind of stuff, I look at these, well, you know, preachers of another Jesus whom we've not preached, and I say, whole church, unfortunately, doesn't quite describe the depth of evil that they are pushing. Matter of fact, Yeshua talks about somebody that's guilty of teaching the little ones this kind of crap, better than a millstone, be put around his neck, and he'd be drug off and flopped into the deepest part of the ocean that offend one of these little ones. This is why I think the term whore church may in fact be um, a bit um, defamatory to those women of the night who just sell their bodies, as opposed to dragging other people and their children into the very depths of hell, making them, as Yeshua rightfully said, even more sons of Satan than you are. Okay, I'll take a deep breath, because I'll admit it, when I hear people of the whore church, when I hear them take the Mashiach, the Torah made flesh, the Son of God by whose blood we have been redeemed, and call him a liar? And say he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about? He said he isn't changing one word of his Torah because he wrote it after all? And they say, hell, he didn't. He did away with it. He nailed it to the cross. Look for it, folks. Look for it. You will not find that big lie in Scripture. Matter of fact, one of this is some markology for you because I can't prove this. It's not just a damned big lie. I will contend that may just be the biggest lie in all of human history. That he did away with his own law. Because it calls him a liar. It makes him a liar and says the truth is not in him. You want to talk about blasphemy of the Ruach HaKodesh? I have trouble coming up with too much of a better definition than that. So that's why I do get angry. All right, back to this quick exposition of so much of uh, the setup for where we are and how we got here, particularly with respect to this week's Torah portion. So we started with the early part of Genesis through Abraham and uh, then Yaakov and his four wives and twelve sons. Uh, We know that this week's story ends with the setup. They're there in the land of Goshen, the sons of Israel, and from that are going to come what? Cruel bondage. And then the Exodus and all of the story of Moshe and the rest of the instruction that has to do with the Torah and the deliverance from cruel bondage and the giving of the commandments and the instruction and so much of what literally is the very complete foundation of our faith. I do not like the term, as you know, the law of Moses, because that that literally demeans his instruction. The word Torah, oh yeah, does it include statutes, judgment, and commandments? Of course it does. There are specific words, mitzvot, mishpatim, hukim, that mean exactly those things. They are commandments. They are statutes. They are part of the law. But what else is Torah? Torah is his instruction. What do we see this week? The story of Joseph being reconciled to his brothers, of Judah manning up. Is there law in there? Well, not so much as you'd notice. Is there instruction? You damn betcha there is a whole lot of it of how we're to behave. What's the essence of the story? I already mentioned it. Yah sent you to do to me what you did so that he might send me to preserve life. You and everybody else that follows. And by the way, the promises to our father and to his father and to his father. It's all part of his plan. But how dare we say that the law is done away with or that Moses only gave statutes and judgments and commandments. By the way, it's kind of like saying Jesus. 
just taught the law. Well, another Jesus whom we've not preached probably just taught the law was done away with. That's why I don't like a term that was never used during his life. Because people tend to confuse the real with the fake. If we understand what the salvation of Yah means and what the Torah made flesh means, well, then we know he couldn't possibly have done away with it because he would have been a liar and the truth is not in him. But he's not. So what did he teach? How did he mostly teach? Okay, anybody? This is a question for the audience. Raise your hand if you know the word parable. He taught with parable. What's a parable? Is it a commandment? No. Is it law? No. Is it instruction? Uh, Yes. Okay, his instruction includes instruction. Isn't that amazing? So again, uh, it's not that the word uh, law is necessarily wrong, because when he does say in his instruction, I'm talking about statutes and judgments and commandments, okay, fine. They are kind of like law. Law includes those elements. But as we know, his instruction, his Torah, is far, far more. Don't sell him short by saying he can't teach. Because most of the real valuable instruction in Torah, as we see this week, it has to do with things that he is showing us by example. Oh, matter of fact, that leads me to what? The whore church, right? How are we going to get there? By example, by instruction, and in some cases by negative instruction. So, if we, if we look at the history, uh, now I'm going to go uh, real fast, we're going to go into warp drive. After the Torah, well, first book after this, what we see is the settling of the land, right? We see Joshua and the time of the judges before there were kings in Israel. And then we get the books of the prophets like Samuel that describe first the first king, Saul, and how Saul screwed up and he was no longer king. It's a great story. I love that, but we don't have time to go into the details. And then we get King David. Lots and lots is written about David. David was a man who had, uh uh-oh, more than one wife. Unlike some of us. Now, David did commit adultery. He admitted it. He fessed up. The one thing David had that probably he did better than any other man I can think of, uh, as a friend of mine likes to put it, David knew how to suck carpet. Okay, When he was wrong, David, unlike most politicians today, fell on his face and said, I am sorry. I will never do it again. And guess what? He didn't. Okay, The famous story, I love the story with Nathan the prophet coming to David. He tells him the story about this man had one little sheep. And this man, uh, this other person, this rich guy who had lots and lots of sheep, came and took this poor man's sheep. And then what does David say? That man needs to die. You know the response? This is one of the, the best lines of a prophet in Scripture. Nathan looks at the king of all Israel and he says, You are the man. What does David say? What does the whore church say? No, not me. I'm not the whore. No. What does David say? You're right. And he falls on his face and he asks for forgiveness and he says, I deserve to die. And he literally would have traded his life for his son. There was death involved. It was David's son from adultery with Bathsheba that died. Tore David up. Taught him a lesson. But you know what? David was called something that I would pray that any of us would love, would pray to be called. Everybody know the words, right? A man after Yah's own heart. This guy who had multiple wives. This guy who committed sins but fessed up to them. This guy whose literal explicit sins were enumerated. Scripture tells us what David got wrong. In the thing of killing Uriah the Hittite and sleeping with his wife and basically killing Uriah to cover it up, he was wrong. What does the idea of forgiveness tell us? Well, it's been recorded so that we know 
so that our instruction can include uh, what it looks like to make a horrible mistake deserving of death and to be forgiven of that horrible mistake. Not only that, so much so that David is, in fact, a kingdom that was given the promise of the Davidic covenant that his offspring, his heir, the Messiah himself, would reign forever. I'd say that's a pretty good recommendation for somebody that had multiple wives and that the whore church likes to say he committed adultery. Well, they're true on one and only one case with Bathsheba and arguably uh, after, not true anymore. But what we do know, David had lots of wives. Did David multiply wives? Evidently not. Solomon, his son, allowed his foreign wives to draw him into adultery. For that, he was criticized. Where am I headed with all this? Well, after the time of David and his son Solomon, who, remember, was the wisest man who ever lived. He asked for wisdom, and he got it. After Solomon, the kingdom was split. And we see thereafter through the kings and the chronicles and the stories, uh, and it's confusing. I remember until I figured this out. Uh, you know, you don't get taught, taught this in Sun God Day school. They won't teach you about why it is that the uh, whore church and the whore synagogue were split. I don't think they like this idea of the metaphor of God himself having two wives. I think that's a big part of it. We'll come back to that in just a second. But certainly what happened is the kingdom was split. So you have essentially the kings of the north, and they are generally in Scripture referred to as the line of the kings of Ephraim. Sometimes Joseph, because as you know, Ephraim was the uh, the son of Joseph. And then, of course, you have the kings of the south, uh, a.k.a. Judah, a.k.a. Judea, uh, a.k.a. Uh, you know the southern kingdom, uh, the kings of the north, Ephraim. You'll also see them referred to like uh, as Samaria, sometimes as the ten lost tribes or the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So one of the keys, I think, to understanding Scripture, and it's part of the reason why I, uh, I like to dwell on this so much, it is vitally important for us to stay, understand things that the whole church just plain doesn't want you to even know about. For example, if their teaching is that a man can only have one wife, why? Because the whore church says so. We are the one who defines marriage. The hell with the God of the Bible. We don't like what he wrote. We changed it all the time. What are they saying? We will license your marriage. By the way, if you look it up, you can find out, although they do tend to hide this. I remember seeing some chronologies years ago. Uh, they're harder and harder to find as the Internet gets scrubbed. But it was eight or 900 years after the time of Yeshua when the Catholic Church decided to outlaw a man having more than one wife. What? That long? Yeah. Centuries later, it was still, it was far more common practice among the southern kingdom of, Ju of Judah than it was in the north. But still, and, and by the way, it wasn't ever a big practice among the Romans and the Greeks because they were pagans and they didn't like uh, that kind of stuff. And they were fine with mistresses. Oh, you can boink all of those little boys too. Oh yeah, we're fine with all that. But uh, not so much actually a man having more than one wife and honoring her and taking care of her in accord with Scripture. Okay, so it was literally centuries before the church said, we don't want a man having more than one wife. What was the real issue? Just like we saw with Abraham, just like we saw with Jacob, and these things are well laid out in Scripture, they became what? They waxed wealthy. They had lots of sons. They had lots of flocks and herds. And they became powerful, here's a term, patriarchs. That was a threat to the whore church and the church state that was being built. So they said no. 
Now, that works so well that the thing that most people are more well aware of, because this, too, has had nasty repercussions throughout history, is they said, hey, we don't like a man having more than one wife. Those become a threat to the church. You know what else is a threat? A priest. A priest having any wife. So they instituted, you know the term, priestly celibacy. Your bride is the church. And by the way, that way you don't get to be very powerful and a threat to us either. Why am I mentioning all of this? Well, because what we're seeing here is a history that is in large part overlooked or just plain lied about, but it has to do with something which is fundamental to our understanding of all of Scripture. And it is so part and parcel of this idea of the whore church and the whore synagogue that neither one of them, surprise, surprise, neither the whore church nor the whore synagogue like to talk about it very much. But um, it's there. And uh, as you know, and I've talked about these many times, so I will not go into a lot of detail today. Again, if there are questions, uh, certainly uh, mark at Mark Nywat is my email address. So mark at Mark Nywat. I'll put it in the uh, the places where the podcast, it's already up actually in, in the places where the podcast will be. You can find it. And I, uh, I get lots of email that way. But I want to make sure it's it's here as we're talking about things that, yeah, if people have not been exposed to these truths, they may very well be offended. And I know that some will listen. They will be given ears to hear. They'll pray about it, and they will see it. Because once you see the truth, folks, you cannot unsee it. So what I will encourage you to do is find those two witnesses in the Scripture. And again, it's not hard. As a matter of fact, there's more than two witnesses. But the two easy ones are the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And without going into a lot of the specifics, I'll just uh, I'll show you the entire chapter of Jeremiah chapter 3. And Ezekiel chapter 23 is all about the two whoring wives. And it's kind of interesting because you see the perspective and the differences and the differences of focus of these two men of Yah, these two prophets. So, in chapter 3 of Yermiyahu or Jeremiah, um, it begins with, they say if a man uh, puts away his wife, the word there is not divorced like some English renderings, if he shalaks, if he sends out his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man, can he return to her again? Would not the land be greatly polluted? But you, he says, talking to who? Guess what, folks? The whore church and the whore synagogue, ultimately, that's who this book is addressed to, but in, in particular this chapter, would not the land be greatly polluted? But you, he says, have done what? You've whored yourself. You've played the harlot with many lovers. What does yod he vav he say? Yet return to me, says Yahuwah. So I will contend the message of Jeremiah 3 of the creator of the universe to his two whoring wives is return to me. Now, let's paraphrase just briefly the rest of a, a long and wonderful book. You need to read it. You need to understand it. You need to take to heart the specifics. But he says, uh, hey, took a look around. Just look and see. Is, is there any hill, is there any green tree that you haven't made whoopa whoopa with, with fake pagan gods? Okay, you're all over the place. And, and some of this gets pretty graphic. And still, after she had done all of these things, what does he say? Return to me. But she didn't return. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking first about the northern kingdom, Israel, a.k.a., folks, the whore church, because the ten lost tribes that were scattered are the ones that essentially formed the foundation. Paul sometimes refers to them as the Gentile church or the Greeks uh, because they don't even know their identity. They were scattered among the pagans. Uh, this was uh, prophesied first by Moshe and then by literally every other prophet. But um, he says, the northern kingdom, she did not. She did not return. 
And guess what? Here's the part that is addressed to the whoring synagogue of the South. Her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So essentially the message here of Yirmiyahu the prophet is, look, uh, all the causes for which I had put away backsliding Israel, the whoring church, and her descendants, right? This was long before there was a whore church, of course, but the descendants are easy to see. Why? Idolatry, adultery, the same things that they were doing then in that northern land, they're still doing. They are still doing. For all of those reasons for which I put her away, she had committed adultery. Still, I was kind to her. He says, I was nice. I put her away. And then, he did something he didn't have to do. Now, this is one of those hard teachings that's been obscured by the whore church as well. If a, if a woman is already a whore, and the husband puts her away, he doesn't owe her anything. She's already been put away for cause. What does a certificate of divorce allow her to do? To remarry, in spite of her whoring, if someone will take her. Uh-oh, see, that that's not exactly what we've been told Matthew chapter 5 says, but it's in fact true because Yeshua's teaching Torah as written, Look at Deuteronomy 24 and so forth. All right, so he put her away and he gave that northern kingdom a certificate of divorce. Still, her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She didn't fear. She didn't take the lesson to heart. She went out and did what? She whored herself too. She played the harlot as well. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but only in pretense, says Yahuwah. Now, as in almost all of these stories, there is a bit of good news. Look, I won't be angry forever, he says. Just acknowledge your Torah lessons. Just admit you've been whoring. You know, return to me. Come back. Acknowledge your Torah lessons, that you have transgressed against Yehuyarel, scattered your charms to all these alien deities, fake gods, under every green tree, and have not obeyed my voice, says Yahuwah. Return. Oh, backsliding children. Who's he talking to? The whore church and the whore synagogue. And I'll take you. I'll give you shepherds, according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. No, not the whore church preachers for those with itching ears. All right. Uh, let's go then to Ezekiel 23. Again, I just uh, summarized a little bit of a longer story. But um, the rest of it makes the point, and it makes it very clear. Jeremiah is um, a perspective that has to do with this idea of return to me. And Ezekiel takes a bit different tack. So, again, I won't go through the whole thing, but I'll just outline a couple of key points because there are some metaphors in here that are very vital to our understanding and, by the way, to some terminology that I frequently use and we need to understand. Um, the word of Yahuwah came to me, says the prophet. Son of man, he says. He gets called that a lot. Son of man, there were two women, daughters of one mother. Okay, they were sisters. They committed harlotry in Egypt. They were whores. They committed harlotry in their youth. Okay, now some pretty graphic stuff. Yeah, adult warning. Their breasts were embraced. Their virgin bosom was pressed. Their names? Ahola, the elder, and Aholaba, her sister. Ahola and Aholaba. They were mine, he says. What? You mean the creator of the universe is actually saying he too, like so many of those people who worshipped him and walked in obedience to his word, had more than one wife? Yep. That's why you won't hear this from the whore church or the whore synagogue. I don't think they like to uh, acknowledge that truth. But they were mine. And they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, all right, Samaria, that would be the northern kingdom, right? Samaria was what it was called during the time of the Mashiach. Samaria is Ahola. Jerusalem, southern kingdom, Judah, is Aholabah. So he tells you, two kingdoms, north and south, Samaria, Jerusalem, 
uh, the sons of the kings of Ephraim, or the sons of the kings of Judah, their names for this prophetic purpose, Ahola and Aholaba. Ahola, it says, that would be the northern kingdom, a.k.a. the progenitor of the whore church. What did the, the whore church do? She played the harlot, even though she was mine. The body of Christ, as they say, we're all of one body, and we're out committing whoring. Do we walk in his ways? No, we get rid of his sun god uh, of his uh, his days and we replace them. He says something's food, don't eat it. Something or uh, something's not food, don't eat it. They say the hell with that. We we know better than you. After all, we're the we're the wife here. We're the uh, we're the one who writes the uh, the laws in this world. Can you see why this terminology, folks, is so apropos? It's not just a rebellious wife. It's a whoring wife. Ahola played the harlot, even though she was mine. She lusted for all of her her lovers, right? And there's some. If you thought it was graphic in uh, Jeremiah, this is even more graphic. All of these desirable young dudes, okay? They uh, they committed harlotry with her, she with them, and uh, basically, woo! It's uh, like I said, it was it's pretty graphic. Um, all right, he too gives almost the same witness that Jeremiah does. Now, although her sister Aholabah, southern kingdom Judah, she saw that. She became even more corrupt in her lust than her, than the first one. And in her harlotry, more corrupt than her sister's whoring, or harlotry. She lusted for everybody, the neighboring Assyrians, and these dudes, and those dudes. And then when I saw, this is the Creator speaking through the prophet, when I saw she was defiled, they both went the same way. She increased her harlotry. She looked at the men portrayed on the wall. Okay, oops, more graphic stuff there. She lusted for them. She multiplied her harlotry. Ooh, she did all this stuff. What does the um, what does the crux of the story say after, again, about uh, 20 verses of pretty graphic demonstrations of what uh, lust and idolatry and adultery and whoring and uh, fake gods and all that kind of stuff look like? By the way, you could pick up the papers of the WAPO or New York Times and draw the modern parallels. They're pretty obvious. Thus says Yahuwah Eloheka. You know what? I will surely deliver you into the hand of those you hate. Now, the reason I focus on this sometimes... Does this sound familiar, folks? They're invading by the millions across the open southern border. 10,000, 12,000, 13,000 a day. I will deliver you into the hand of those who hate you. Into the hands of those from whom you alienated yourself. These fake gods, these people. They'll deal hatefully with you. They'll take away everything you've worked for. They'll leave you naked and bare. The nakedness of your harlotry shall be uncovered. Both you, your lewdness, and your harlotry. I'll do these things to you, says he, the creator, because you've gone as a harlot after the goyim, the Gentiles, the nations. Now, that, that, that word is interesting. Gentiles, as I usually suggest, has a pagan connotation. It sure as hell does here, doesn't it? Because you have become defiled by their idols, their idolatry. You walked in the same way as your sister. Therefore, I will put her cup in your hand. Now, this is one we don't have time for, too, but certainly this idea of the cup. The cup that is put in the hand of the whoring wife. Numbers chapter 5. The cup that Yeshua took at Gethsemane. Oh, if it's your will, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nope. All right, he says, let not my will, but thy will be done. He did what? He drank from the cup of the whoring wife. What does Scripture tell us? He came but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He drank the cup. All right, all of the pieces, as you begin to see it, they all fit together. 
Thus says Yahuwah. This is from uh, Ezekiel 23, 32. You will drink of your sister's cup. Yeah, you know, the deep and the wide one. You shall be laughed to scorn, held in derision. Because, oh, baby, it's full of, you know what. You'll be filled with drunkenness, sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation. The cup of your sister Samaria. Ahola, the northern kingdom, a.k.a. Israel. You'll drink it? You'll drain it. You'll break its shards, tear at your own breast, for I have spoken, says Yehuah Eloheka. What does he say? Now, this is the verse that I think probably summarizes the reason why I will contend the terminology, the whore church and the whore synagogue, is not only easy to see, because the descendants, the progenitors, they're so clear, they are still every bit as apropos today as they ever were. Verse 35, Therefore thus says Yehuah Because you have forgotten me, cast me behind your back. What, called me a liar? Said the law is done away with. My instruction that I said keep forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places, you treat it as nothing. You'd rather have your fake gods. You'd rather have your rock bands and your Joel Osteens and your 501c3 tax deductions and your manses and all this crap. Oh, and your Christmas and your buddies and your eggs and your Ishtar. You got pagan crap. Oh, yeah. Drink from that cup. All right. Yep, does. It should make us angry, folks, because it's still being fed to children. Better a millstone be hung around their necks than what they're doing to the little ones, says Yeshua. Here's what he also says. Are we talking about uh, the uh, the father or the son, or is it in fact true that, as he says, they are a chad, they are a unity? Because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, therefore you shall bear the penalty of your lewdness and your whoring, says Yahuwah. Oh yeah, and then there's this. And I guess I think uh, all of us should read this and ask ourselves the question, does the term whore church apply? Well, here's what he told the prophet. Yahuwah said to me, Son of man, will you judge both of those whoring wives? Will you judge Ahola and Aholaba? Then declare to them their abominations, their toweba. The, the term here that's used, folks, is exactly the same term that's used for a man lying with a man as with a woman. It is the strongest condemnation in the Hebrew language. The word that is rendered as abominations. And as you will see, often, specifically, as in the case of that I've, the one I just mentioned, and by the way, in the case of idolatry, adultery, it carries a death penalty. Declare to them their abominations, why they're deserving of death. Because they have committed adultery. Blood is on their hands. They've committed adultery with their idols. They've even sacrificed their sons whom they bore to me. What? You mean like in all the uh, uh, abortion clinics all across the land that the Hort Church just says just fine? Well, they used to. Or do they? I don't know. It's hard to tell sometimes. They they change, right? Remember when the, uh, the, the, the Catholic Church, before they had the uh, Prince Satan, uh, Pope Satan, sorry, it's hard to keep them straight. Um, they they used to say they were against adultery. Of course, they used to say they were against homosexuality. This week they're saying, well, bless those unions. Uh, why? Well, because we're the ones who really gives the blessing. doesn't matter what the Creator says. We used to pretend we cared about His Word. That was a lie, too. Right? What was it Judah was told? She didn't return to me with her whole, whole heart, only feignedly. He knows. He can tell. It's by their fruit. We know them. Will you judge Ahola and Aholaba? Declare to them. They've committed adultery. Blood's on their hands. With their idols. They've sacrificed their sons that they bore to me. Moreover, they've done this. They've defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. You mean 
You mean we're not supposed to celebrate Christmas and pretend that the Mashiach, who uh, who didn't die so that we could eat um, ham sandwiches, and who... Oh, come on, folks. Uh, you know, it's it's just disgusting to even think about how far they have gone from what is written to where the whore church and the whore synagogue are today. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbath. Because after they slain their children for their idols, that same day, they came to my sanctuary to profane it. Uh, nowadays, what would, they, what would the whore church tell you? Oh, the sanctuary is in my heart. The temple of God is within me. It's a whore, and I don't give a damn about what I put in that temple of God body, and I will do all kinds of things with it that he says don't do lest I die. Can we see how the pattern is not at all, even in the slightest bit, really different? The only difference is they, they have what? They've got another Jesus whom we've not preached. That they're coming up and saying, oh yeah, yeah, our sins are forgiven. Even though we don't have a damned intention whatsoever to turn, to actually make Teshuvah. They don't even know what the word means. I get kind of irritated when I hear them talk about repent. They don't know what repent means. It's real simple. It means turn around. You're going the wrong way. Teshuvah is the Hebrew word. It means the act of turning around when you realize you're headed to hell, when you're going off the cliff. Make a 180. Don't make a 90, and then later on, swerve back on track. No. Furthermore, okay, um, they've done all this in the midst of my house, he says. And uh, there's more, okay. Um, this, this story, at least the chapter, ends on kind of a negative note. Essentially, this is how the, uh, the prophet puts it. I will then ultimately cause lewdness to cease from the land, that all women may, not be, may be taught not to practice your lewdness. They shall repay you for your lewdness, and you shall pay for your idolatrous sins. Then you shall know, ki ani Yahuwah. Then you shall know that I am what? A name they still don't know. yod Hey vav Hey. Then you shall know Ki and the Isn't it funny? The whore church and the whore synagogue, they took his name that he says we're supposed to know. It was the whole point of Exodus. They will know. Egypt will know. All the world will know. You'll know. Ki and the They took it out. They put capital L-O-R-D in there. And they say the Lord does this. The Lord does that. Trouble is, it's Baal they're talking about, whether they'll admit it or not. Because what's the word Baal mean? Same as Lord. L-O-R-D. There are so many places in Scripture where we can see things that are apropos to this. I, um, I did a word search, and I encourage you to do this. Uh, look for things like offense. And you remember that Yeshua promised that many will be offended, right? Are you offended by this, uh, this comment? Yeah, this is a hard teaching. Well, you know what, folks? I guess uh, you could say that uh, people that have been brought up with the whore church and idolatry, it's a hard teaching to tell them that they have, in fact, been, whether they like it or not, worshiping another Jesus whom we've not preached, who didn't actually do away with the law. The real one didn't. The fake one did. Okay, Matthew 15, 24. I've alluded to some of these. I'm not going to go through all of them because we could literally spend days just looking up and going through places that make this point. Matthew 15, 24, the story of the woman who comes to him. And, you know, even the little dogs, right, they get the scraps off the table. He tells her there, I am sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, Matthew uh, 5, 13, during the Sermon on the Mount, is an interesting place. Now, that one I will turn to quickly because it's um, it's really kind of, um, now that we've got some stuff out there, kind of... I would almost say it's, it's, it's eye-opening. It's one of those that I didn't even think about uh, as I've talked about some of these for so many, uh, for so many years. This is where he says, Blessed are you 
when they revile and persecute you, and they say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. You don't love Jesus because you don't worship at the altar of the whole church. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in Hashemayim. Because you know what? They persecuted the prophets before you, and uh, trust me, they're going to do it to you too. Matter of fact, he says elsewhere, they'll try to kill you, and they'll say they're doing God's work. Guess what? They'll do the Lord's work. It's just a different God. Then verse 13 says this. Now, this is kind of fascinating. Think about it in the context. You, he said, are the salt of the earth. We know the verse, right? But in context... You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Is he talking about the whore church? Is he talking about us when we, in fact, walk in rebellion to him? I can't help but think the answer is yes to all of the above. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Don't put your lamp under a basket. Everybody's heard this. This is why Christian kids need to go to the public cesspools to have their genitalia cut off and to be convinced that men can lie with men as with women. Is What a crock. No. Let your light shine before men, he says, so that they may see your what? Your good works? And glorify your Father, Be'ahashemayim, uh, in the heavens. And then we get to those verses that I quote all the time. Notice how he led up to it. Do not think that I have come to destroy the Torah or the Navi'im, the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to make complete, to fulfill, to fill these things up with meaning. Because assuredly, I tell you, as long as heaven and earth still exist, till they pass away, not one yod or one little tittle will pass by any means from the Torah, that's the word he used, until all is fulfilled. I like to say it. Uh, has all been fulfilled? Hmm. Is Damascus still a city? Are the things we're going to talk about here in a minute in Ezekiel, have those been fulfilled yet? If not all has been fulfilled, well, then we know the answer. Not one Yoder tittle has passed from his instruction. What was food is still food. What is marriage is still marriage. What his Sabbaths were to be, well, they're still his Sabbaths, his Moedim. Do we still have to uh, remember his Sabbaths? Well, not unless we want to be obedient to him. Not unless we want to be pleasing to our Father. I, is, am I telling you, you must keep the law? Hell no. That's a stupid word. Am I telling you that if you claim to be obedient to him, that you should obey your Father? Well, that's up to you. Mesh, uh, Yeshua, by the way, gives us some parables. Remember that? Talks about the two sons, one of whom who's told to go do something. He says, I ain't going to do it. And the other one says, I'll do it, Dad. And then the one that was, wasn't going to do it goes and does it anyway. And then the one that said he would do it lied. He didn't go do it. What does Yeshua say? By the way, notice, he just asked it as a question. Which one was obedient to his father? Which one do you want to be, folks? This is teaching, instruction, by parable. All right. Um, we've mentioned Matthew 10, 6. Uh, I come but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He is also asked... In Acts 1.6, now this is kind of fascinating, will you at this time, will you at this time, this is during the time when he's walking among them after the end of the, uh, the other books that we're familiar with, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Answer, did he? No, he didn't. Huh. I guess all is still not yet fulfilled. Now, the 70 AD crowd will say, oh, that was coming a couple months later. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. 
let's do what I uh, have said we were going to work up to. There's, there's literally dozens more. Uh, if you're writing these down, uh, I'll encourage you to take a look at a few places. I've, I've got uh, tons and tons of examples here. But uh, um, Joshua chapter 22, verse 16. Jeremiah 23, uh, verse 2. Now that one is, um, that one is pretty dramatic. I'll read it real quickly. This is the same guy who just finished, uh, you know, a couple, 20 chapters earlier, talking about Ahola, although he didn't use the name. That was Ezekiel's name for them. The uh, the, the Whoring Wives, 23.2. Woe to the shepherds, he says. Woe to what? Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says Yahuwah. Uh, what, you mean like those that are the whore church? They got their 501c3s. They say the law's done away with. Let's have a little bit of Christmas cheer here. Let's have another rock song and let's uh, uh, let's declare how we're going to do. You know what I'm getting at. Okay. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep. Therefore, thus says Yahuwah, Elohim of Israel, against those shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Remember the line, and this is also in the list of ones that I could mention to you, when uh, Yeshua is talking to Kepha, what does he say? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. The whole church says Kepha was the first pope. Hmm, we'll come back to that one. You have scattered my flock, you've driven them away, you didn't attend to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says Yahuwah. But I... What will he do? He will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their folds that they will be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they will fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, he says. So here is another example, again, of this regathering and of so many pieces And I'll say it one more time because I think this is so vitally important. You cannot understand, you cannot see the completion of the story, of his plan, of how all the pieces fit together. Don't even think about trying to look at the prophetic elements of where we are and what's coming without understanding the importance of the fact that the Creator wrote things about covenant, he wrote things about marriage, that the whore church has lied about, deceived you about, and literally turned on their head. A man can't have more than one marriage, but boy, he can boink little boys and you know what, and that's perfectly okay. We'll bless him for that. Not from the creator of the universe, you won't. Some other notes here. Again, we won't go through these, but in the book of Ezekiel alone, uh, after the reference to a hole in the hole, there are no less than four that I think will really resonate when you understand this idea of shepherds and feeding the flock and scattering those and false shepherds and the whore church. Ezekiel 11.17, Ezekiel 18.31, Ezekiel 20.44, Ezekiel 47.22. So, okay, well, with all of that, uh, let's turn and let's look at the Haftorah portion. I promise this. We started with it and we need to, um, we need to work up to it. And here we are. From the same prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37, the um, the one that begins with the dry bones, right? Chapter 37 begins with uh, them bones and bones going to walk around. The reason why I mention that is because um, he says the following to um, the prophet concerning the dry bones, right? We've all heard this song. We, we probably know the story. There will come a time when the, the bones will have the flesh put back on them and be reanimated. But what's the key verse here, I think, to set up 
what we're going to talk about next, the two sticks. He says to me, son of man, these bones are what? Listen carefully. These bones are coal bait Israel. These bones in English are the whole house of Israel. What does that mean? It means both kingdoms, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. That's how we begin. These bones are the whole house. Both houses, both whoring wives, both sent into exile, shalak for cause. Both, by the way, still in exile. Whore synagogue, whore church, still in exile today. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. So, what is the prophet told? Hey, prophesy and say to them, thus says Yahuwah Eloheka, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and I'll cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And this is one of those things, too, that I think a lot of people tend to miss out on, and it's one of the elements that I think is so important to understanding, because there is this prophecy of the greater regathering. Uh, the Hort Church doesn't seem to focus on this very much. I rarely, if ever, can even remember having heard it mentioned, and yet it is central. Moses talks about in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and every prophet thereafter, Jeremiah 31, we see it over and over again. I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know. Ready? How many times does this appear in Scripture? I, I need to write this down. Uh, literally dozens, if not hundreds. Ki ani Yahuwah, who has opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my ruach in you, and you shall live. I'll place you in your own land. Then you shall know, what? That I, Yahuwah, have spoken it and performed says Yahuwah. All right. Now here comes the part that I want to uh, that I'm going to read. This is the Haftorah again for everything that goes with this understanding of what Joseph just did and what um Judah by manning up and by making sure that the brothers in fact were not just obedient but were then placed in a position of safety where they could in fact be saved, their lives would be preserved, and all that follows would then would then happen. But furthermore, yep, the cycles would repeat too, and that included a period of uh, kind of a high note and then bondage, and then the exodus. And then later, and I contend here we are, are we on the cusp? How close, uh, right? <laughs> Who knows? We'll find out. I pray that we will see it. One way or the other, we will. The greater exodus, the things that are being talked about right here, Now, as we go through this, I'm going to make it as clear as I can, because I think Scripture is undeniable. This has not happened yet. Again, the word of Yahuwah came to me. This is verse 15 of chapter 37 of Ezekiel. As for you, son of man, get yourself a stick. Take a stick for yourself and write on it the following. Now, listen carefully, because this too... This gets overlooked if you don't understand the whore church and the whore synagogue, Ahola and Aholabah, the split, the history, the prophecy. It is all key to this verse. Two sticks, two kingdoms, two whoring wives. We're talking about the same thing, right? As for you, son of man, get yourself a stick and write on it for Judah and for the Benai Israel, his companions. Judah and the Benai Israel, the sons of Israel, his companions. Now, wait a second. 
sons of Israel. Well, aren't isn't that Israel? Yeah, but which Israel, right? Before or after the split? Remember, when we talk about Israel, context is vital to understand. And this is one of the other things that the whore church that claims to be replacement theology Israel overlooks. I despise the whole concept of replacement theology. Well, the Jews didn't recognize Jesus, but we did because he did away with the law. So we're the replacement church. No, you're the replacement whore church, but you ain't replacing anything. You're just doing exactly what your progenitors did centuries before when they were kicked out of the land for the same damn thing. Notice I use that expression explicitly. Idolatry. All right. As for you, son of man, get yourself a stick. Right for Judah and for the Benai Israel, her companions, his companions, his companions. Okay, so this would be the southern kingdom. Then, he says, take another stick and write on that one for Joseph. Joseph, right? The uh, progenitor of both Ephraim and Manasseh. The kings of Ephraim are the ones that usually are referred to as the northern kingdom, uh, a.k.a. Israel after the split, uh, Samaria, right? We know those names, Ahola. Take another stick, write on that, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for the house of Israel, his Companion. So we've got two sticks, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Then, join them one to another for yourself into one stick. Now, the Hebrew here is, I love this, uh, you will hear the word echad, and echad, okay, that just means one, right? The cardinal number, one. One is the loneliest number. Well, echad is, I think, uh, often more important and bigger than that. Echad means a unity. We have examples. The Creator Himself is Echad. Is He three or is He one? Well, you know, I can do calculus, but that math is beyond my ken. It's a mystery. But I do know what the word Echad means. It means unity. A one is a unity, but what, what's a flock, right? We know what a flock is. One flock. It's a unity of sheep. What about a marriage where there are multiple husbands who have a marriage, I'm sorry, multiple wives, who have uh, one husband, uh, each of them has a marriage with that one husband, and yet, can that house be echad? It can be. How can it be? Answer, if it's walking in obedience to him. Read what Paul says, and it becomes clear. The head of the house is the man. The head of the man must be the Mashiach, who is what? Echad with the one who wrote the book. He is the one who wrote the book. They are echad. Shema Israel, Yehuah Eloheinu, Yehuah Echad. Yahuwah is the great unity. That word is going to appear in here with this stick over and over and over again. And I'll emphasize it as we go through it. So here we go. Get yourself these two sticks. Right on it. For the house of the north, Ahola. For the house of the south, Aholaba, if you will. Now, join them together. And they will become Echad. A stick, Echad, a unity in your hand. Now, when the children of your people speak to you saying, Will you not show us what you mean by all of these things? You say to them, Thus says Yahuwah Eloheka. Now, listen to this, folks. And when I read this, I almost want to cry. Because this is a blessing for sure. Surely, says Yahuwah Eloheka, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and I will make them a stick, a chad, a unity, and they will be a chad, a unity, in my hand. Who does it? yod heh vav hey. Can man say, I'll join with the Jews, with Jews for, Je- Jews for Jesus? Uh, you know, if you're, if you're preaching another Jesus whom we've not preached, ain't going to work. Hasn't worked. 
As a matter of fact, if you've, uh, as I have, talked to rabbis and so forth, I think it's fascinating how many discussions I've had with rabbis and with Orthodox Jews who hate the idea of Jesus because they've been told he did away with the law. But when you approach them and say, hey, do you understand that the real Messiah, who is in fact a name that you've heard and prayed many, many times, Yahushua, the salvation of Yah, oh yeah, well we, we have lots of prayers that say that word. Well, of course. And they know Joel. They recognize that if in fact the Messiah is the Messiah, then he had better not done away with the law. And at least there is an openness to say, huh, I've never heard it that way. Right? I quote Matthew 5 uh, that I've just quoted, 17 through 19. And I remember my rabbi friend, I've said this a hundred times. He said that? He said that? Yeah, I can show you. And I did. Wow. Okay. Back to the two sticks. They will become echad in my hand. He does it. That's the key here. They ain't echad because some rabbi got together with some Christian and said, we can, we can put aside our differences. No. They are echad because he opens their eyes and shows both of them why they've been whoring and how it is that whoring synagogues and whoring churches aren't the right answer and they're still in exile because of it. And it's he that will bring them together. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes, he says. Now let me repeat it. Has this happened? I will contend no, and we're going to see why. Then say to them, thus says, no, not the Lord God, thus says Yahuwah Elohecha, surely I will take the Benai Israel, the children of Israel, from among the nations, wherever they have gone. We've been scattered, right? Moses promised it. Every prophet since then, that, uh, before it happened, talked about it. I will take them from where they've been scattered, and I will gather them from every side, and I will bring them into their own land. And I will make them a nation, echad, in the land, on the mountains of Israel. Has this happened? No. And one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall, listen to this, has this ever happened? Well, <laughs> this one's easy. Nor shall they ever again be divided into two kingdoms. Are we a cod today? Hell no. Has this happened? Well, somebody's lying. The prophecy here has not been established, is not complete, because they are still two kingdoms. He says they will never again, once he does it, be divided. They shall not... Now, by the way, this is true, too. Listen to this. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their bunnies, their eggs, their Christmas trees, you name it, or their detestable things, uh, with their uh, cutting the genitalia off little children and the sacrament of abortion. Nope, none of that. Um nor with any of their other transgressions. But in fact, he says, I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, Ooh, and I'll cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their Elohim. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have shepherd, echad, one shepherd, a shepherd that is a unity. They shall also, uh-oh, here we go. Does this fit the whole church? They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes. There are words, folks, that do mean law. My judgments, my statutes. Mishvotim hukim. To do them. 
to them, not just pay lip service to them. They then shall dwell in the land that I have given to my servant Jacob, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they and their children and their children's children, forever. Ha'olam. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Notice how often he says the word forever, just like he says, keep my Sabbaths forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Remember the first covenant of peace we see in the book? A fellow named Pinchas. What did he do? He ran Cosby and Zimri through with a spear right there because they were committing adultery, idolatry, worshiping fake gods right there in front of Moses and Cole Israel. So, I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Indeed, my Mishkan, my tabernacle, shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their Elohim, and they shall be my people. The nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles. This time the English version here says the nations, but they could have said the Goyim. Uh, well, the word is the Goyim in the Hebrew. The Gentiles? The pagans? Well, they know it. The nations will also know that I, Yahuwah, sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary, my tabernacle, my mishkan, is in their midst forevermore. So, again, I, I think there are so many things here that are key. A, we, we can't really understand the prophecies until we understand the elements of the division of Yah's two wives, the two whoring houses. And yes, like it or not, I will contend the term whore church and whore synagogue because that is the word he uses. Your harlotries, your whoring of Babylon, your adulteries, your idolatries, your filthiness, the cup for which is put in your hand. Who gets the cup? The wife that is accused of idolatry, adultery. Who took the cup for us? The one who cleansed us by taking the cup that is intended to kill, to destroy, to judge the whoring wife. You cannot miss the metaphor. If you do, folks, you miss the whole point of the story. So when I hear people say, oh, how dare you, it's offensive. I'm offended, I'm offended. Well, you know what? There's leftists that are offended when you don't want your children to have their genitalia cut off. They're offended, how dare you diss the wonderful homosexuals and transgenders. And how dare you diss their god, Satan. You see the story this week? They're, they're tearing down statutes of, of um, people like... Um, General Robert E. Lee and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, but a guy dared to tear down a statue of Baphomet in Iowa, and he's going to jail. Good grief. Well, there's a, there's a message here. They're offended. Yeshua said there's a whole lot of folks be offended. You're offended by me, and I guess that's the point. They are offended by the author of Scripture, the Torah made flesh, the creator of the universe, and the one who came to redeem us. And he said that that was exactly what was going to happen. Matter of fact, he said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. Can we see it? Is it clear? There is no coexistence, folks, with those who worship another god and who hate the god of the Bible. Now, with all of that on the table, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start to wrap it up with um, a... Um, a line from the prophet Hosea. This is one I don't quote nearly as often as the one about uh, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, but it happens not long thereafter. It's chapter 5 of Hosea. And listen, see, here's part of the reason why you can't understand this prophecy, I don't think, until we begin to recognize and really understand the history of Northern Kingdom, Ahola, Southern Kingdom, Aholaba, Ten Lost Tribes, Israel, Judah, and so forth, right? 
Listen to the reference here and, and think about who is the prophet talking to and about. Okay, it starts out by talking about um, Judah saw his wound. We'll, we'll, we'll pick it up a couple verses earlier. Um, and he, this, is, this is the desolation and the destruction of Israel that's being predicted by the prophet. Okay, we know that happened. Um, Judah saw the wound. Ephraim went to Assyria, so the northern kingdom we're talking here, right? And sent to King Yareb. Yet he can't cure you nor heal you of your wound. So what does Yah say? What does the prophet say? For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. Ephraim, Ephraim. Oh yeah, that's a reference to the northern kingdom, right? And like a young lion to the house of Judah. Here's a reference. Both kings. King of the north, king of the south. I'll be like a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take them away and no one will rescue them. I will return again to my place, he says. Now listen to this and ask yourself, wow, is this a lesson for today? Remember, we are still in exile. Still in exile. I will return again to my place, he says. Elsewhere, by the way, he says he will hide his face. That's always one of those lines that resonates with me. I will return again to my place until when? Until we say, Jesus comes... No, listen to this. Till they acknowledge their offense. You mean like bunnies and eggs and changing his birthday to coincide with a pagan god and doing all kinds of things like sacrificing children and saying that's a great sacrament? How about just walking in rebellion to him and saying, here's how you'll be worshipped, God. I don't give a damn if you like it or not. I will, returning into my place, until they acknowledge their offense, then, he says, they will seek my face in their affliction. Will they earnestly seek me? Now, I love this verse. I think it's an appropriate way to start to conclude today because there are so many things that we can recognize that those words, right, they, they resonate with so much of Scripture. Seek and ye shall find, it says Yeshua. Well, what do we got to seek? Why don't we seek what was really written as opposed to what men say he should have written if he was as smart as they think they are? If we don't understand what Torah really says, what the instruction... And by the way, when I use the word Torah, folks, remember, yes, that word capitalized is the five books of Moses, fine. But Torah means instruction. What's instruction? All the book starting with Genesis 1-1 and all the way through the maps at the, at the end of the book. It's all instruction. It's lives. It's examples, both good and bad, of men like Yaakov and Ephraim and Joseph and bad kings like Ahab and good kings like David and even kings like David who made mistakes but were still, because they repented, called a man after God's own heart. There is so much of this that is so important but that we simply will not understand if we cling to lies. And that is the essence, right? I'm asked the question, what is it that defines the whore church? And I guess that's the easy answer. It loves the lie, its lie, more than his truth. And if you are if you're attending a church where the, the so-called shepherd is willing to tell you lies is willing to stand by quietly while lies are pushed? Honestly, get the hell out of there. We are at a time when you'd better have decent shepherds, where you better be able to study to show yourself approved, where we need to be able to say, hey, you know what? 
if I really am guilty of walking in whoring before him, if I put bunnies and eggs and Christmas trees ahead of what he really said, maybe I got some repenting to do. Maybe I can take at least a little bit of an example from David's life, that teaching, and say, fall on my face, and I'll do better. I will turn. Turn to what? Return to him, to his table. What is the purpose of the feasts? What is the purpose of the Sabbaths? They are reminders, right? As Paul says, they are shadow pictures. They are all kinds of things that are given to us. Oh, because we uh, we walk in obedience to the law. Do we have to obey the law of of, of uh, Moses? I was asked, uh, does the whore church is the whore church anybody who doesn't obey the law of Moses? Honestly, it's a stupid question. And if you can't phrase the question properly, you ain't gonna understand the answer. Do you choose to try to walk in obedience? Or are you one of those who, having eyes sees not, having ears hears not, and would rather believe the lie? Because they have rejected knowledge, I will reject their children and will also reject them from being priests for me, says this same prophet, Hosea. It's consistent. And that's the part of of the the beauty of his scripture, folks, that that really stands out to me and that that I can't help but think we just plain have to emphasize. It is so important. Are we preaching the whole counsel? Are we studying his whole counsel? If you are looking at scripture, and I've, I've had people say, oh, you know, my wife this, or my brother that, or my son that, they say, what about this, what about that? Do you stone your children, right? You've all heard this crap. Uh, from people that, oh, look, Scripture is so inconsistent, I can't believe any of it. Well, the problem is you've inherited lies from your fathers. You're not willing to study and seek out the entire picture. And when you see pieces, like what you've been told about marriage, or what you've been told about food, or Peter's dream, or any of a bunch of other things, it's because you took it out of context, or were allowed to not see the entire picture, didn't study the truth for yourself, and can't put the pieces together. Again, once you see the truth... You will not be deceived by a lie there. Now, I I remember, and I guess it's also appropriate that I at least uh, mention Matthew chapter 24, because this is is where we are today. And Yeshua warns in Matthew 24, right, what will be the sign of your coming? Well, he says, take heed that no one deceive you. Folks, we are at a place now where AI is deceiving many. That's what he says. If it were possible, false Christ, false prophets, false Christ. Hell, we got whole whore churches dedicated to false Christ that did away with the law. They'll even show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. How do I read that in the context of today? Well, you know, I can't help but think one possible fulfillment. Uh, imagine an AI that is so godlike that it's got, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, Charles Schwab und the, the, the Biden Führer and all the others saying, see, we will worship at this altar of this AI who will tell us how to run the world and how you can eat bugs and how you can have your little EVs and how climate change will destroy you. But I, the great God, Mother Nature. Oh, man, I saw a commercial this week. Disgusting from Apple. All right. So much paganism. They will deceive even the elect. They intend to. We are going to be fed lies upon lies. You're going to see people saying things that didn't really say them, but the deep fakes are going to be really convincing. If anyone says to you, look, see here, there's a Christ, there's a Christ over there, don't believe it, because false Christ and false prophets will rise. We're seeing it. The whore church, folks, has been preaching, and this is my definition for those that really say, hey, I'll pin you down, define it. They preach a false Christ. Another Jesus whom we have not preached. And Paul warned us, I'm afraid you'll put up with it. They have. 
See, he says, I have told you beforehand. There's more in here. I encourage folks to read it, but um, I'll uh, I'll mention this last verse and then we'll uh, then we'll pray. Right at the beginning, he says, right. You know this line, it's a very famous one. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famine, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. Got a great big eruption happening right now in Iceland. Um, you name it, this has been going on. we got World War III, multiple fronts. Have we seen nukes yet? No, that's not the beginning of World War III. Remember, that's the end. All these, he says, are just the beginning of sorrows. They'll deliver you up to tribulation. They'll kill you. You'll be hated by all nations. For my name's sake. They're offended, folks, when you call out the whore church. And when you say, I don't particularly like the idea of a name that is the only name by which we can be saved, which represents another Jesus whom we may not preach. Oh, you're, you're denying the, the Son of God. No, I'm not. I'm just telling you, he didn't do what you're claiming he did. And if you're claiming he did away with the law, sorry, we're worshiping a whole different God. So is it, is it that hard to believe? That uh, we who know and try to walk in obedience to the one true creator, his word, will be hated as he promised. He didn't come to bring peace, remember, but a sword. By all nation, for my name's sake. Then many will be offended. <laughs> uh, gee, tell me, right? We're offended by you calling the whore church the whore church. Tough. Many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, you know, Bueller, Bueller, any questions? You got a Supreme Court, a bunch of black-robed whores, that's my term for people who put their hand on a Bible, lie before the creator of the universe, swear to defend the Constitution, and then gang rape it and then tell you, you don't like it? Hell, we're not even going to count your write-in votes if they don't meet our criterion. Can you really look at what's going on with the courts in this land and not say Yeshua was right? Lawlessness will abound, and the love of many has, past tense now, grown cold? Here is the, the word that I will say is... Uh, comforting, important, vital. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel, this truth, which, you know, the one that's uh, that, that another Jesus, another gospel, same verse says, Paul pointed out, yeah, that, the real one, will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the goyim, and then, and then will the end come. I guess there's one other verse as I, as I read that that I thought of up front, and it didn't fit as I was going through here, but it does now as, we are, uh, as we're putting the ribbons to this. There's a letter a fellow named Shaul, a.k.a. Paul, wrote to, actually wrote two letters, you, you've heard of both of them, to a fellow named Timothy. The second one is kind of interesting, and it's the one that I actually alluded to, actually quoted up front today, and uh, it comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4. But I'm going to go back just a little bit before that, because he sets it up in chapter 3. Know this, he says, in the last days, perilous times will come. <laughs> yeah, I like to ask the question, are we there yet? Men will be, you've probably all heard this, I won't read the whole thing, because it's about four verses long, lovers of money, uh, even fake money. They don't love kasef so much as they love the ability to print it out of nothing. Uh, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unholy, unthankful, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Here's the key. From such people, the whore church in other words, turn away. 
Because this sort, those of the kind who creep into households and make captives of gullible women locked down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, or at least thinking they're learning, right? They've learned all kinds of crap that isn't true, and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Okay? Yui says that you, you're being careful. You're trying to follow my doctrine, purpose of living, life, faith, perseverance. Yes. And all you who desire to live in accord with Elohim, right? And I'm going to rephrase this just a little bit because we got so much baggage associated with certain words here. All of you who desire to live in accord with the teachings of the Mashiach, the Torah made flesh, what? Will suffer persecution. Right? Any questions? And evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. They got their 501c3s. They got their certificate of graduation from their cemetery schools. They're going to teach you how to die and how to uh, prove that the God of the Bible doesn't know what he's talking about. And he changed his own word. He's fickle, just like Loki and other fake fake gods. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue to learn and to walk into things that you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now this, i got to say, isn't that interesting? Have you learned them from the real Messiah or the one who's a fake? Have you learned them from Paul, the one who did away with the law, or the one who kept the instruction of his master? Seems like there's a difference. The one who warned. Then in Galatians, the most twisted book in Scripture, and he said it twice. Somebody comes... And they're, they're telling you something different? I say, let him be accursed. Wow. And it's funny. You go through the rest of that book, and if you do not understand the things we've been talking about here, and you believe that Paul is a liar and the truth, well, no, if you believe he did away with the law, and he proved that he didn't, he took a Nazarite vow, among other things, then you are, in fact, being deceived. You must continue the things which you've learned. All right. And here we go. This one, too, is kind of uh, humorous. All Scripture, he says. When Paul wrote that, what's he talking about? Is he talking about um, books that haven't been written yet? I would suggest it's arguable. I admit, maybe it's a stretch. It would certainly be Markology, were I to claim this, that he was talking about, say, this letter. Is it all Scripture? Well, you'll hear the whole church say, oh, of course it is, as we've translated it and even mistranslated it. You gotta look at the Greek, because you can't understand the Torah for yourself. No, that's Catholic doctrine. You can't read the Bible. Matter of fact, it was a capital crime for the better part of a thousand years for a laity, a layperson to have a Bible. Can you believe that? But it makes sense if you understand it. All scripture. Well, I think he was referring to the scripture that they knew and agreed on, uh, the so-called Kanak, the Torah, the writings, and the prophets, things that were quoted in these writings. Paul quotes them all the time. All scripture, though. Okay, does it include this letter? I'm willing to go there, but that would be Markology. Let's just understand, there's a bit of a stretch there. If you want to go there, fine, I won't argue, but I'm not going to claim that we can prove that that's what he meant, because I don't think it really was, not until later. All scripture is given by inspiration of Elohim, and it's profitable for for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and get this, instruction in Torah obedience. Uh Uh-oh. What's that word? The word is zadika in the Hebrew. That would be the word that Paul understood, because remember, he was a consummate Torah scholar. The word righteousness has to do explicitly, and he says it in Romans and elsewhere, with Torah obedience. Instruction in righteousness. So that the man of Elohim may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, that's good stuff. But 
next chapter tells us, look here, a time's going to come when people will not endure sound doctrine. Now, this is the one I alluded to, right? This is 2 Timothy 4. They won't allure, they won't endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, they got itching ears, don't you know? They will heap up for themselves teachers, preachers, fakes. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Jesus was born on Christmas Day. And uh, and, and we celebrate that. Uh, and his death and resurrection with bunnies and eggs, named after the, the wonderful goddess Ishtar. Because, you know, bunnies and eggs are important to a Christian understanding. You, he says, you meaning Timothy in this case, but I guess that's us if we think all Scripture includes this letter and we take it to ourselves. You be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and um, do the work of an evangelist, fulfilling your ministry. Oh, see, this is a specific to him in particular. But the point is the following. Um, if we understand the the writings of people like Shaul, again, who followed the Mashiach and who knew that if he had been doing away with the law, he would have been a liar and the truth is not in him. I think it's funny. People read the Dream of Peter, and they they say uh, Peter says uh, he sees all these these things coming down on the blanket, right? And uh, oh Lord, I've never eaten anything unpure or unclean, right? I, I never ate any pig. Well, wait a minute. You walk with Jesus, didn't he tell you the law was done away with? Peter, how could you have gone all these years and not known to have a nice ham sandwich? Where you been, boy? Weren't you paying attention? Answer: Who are we kidding, folks? And if you'll just read the rest of the letter. Peter tells you, hey, you know, I realize he wasn't talking about food at all. He's talking about men. And he said, men that have been cleansed. Let me call them not unclean. Men can be cleansed. Pigs are still pigs. And I guess there's a metaphor there for all of us, too. Okay, so with all of that, I'm going to encourage folks, um, if there's anything I've said today that you say, wow, uh, that certainly uh, offends me, search out the Scripture for yourself. Don't believe me. It's there. I tried to give as many of the verses as I uh, as I could get in. Um, there are many, many others we didn't talk about, but you can do the word searches. You can do searches for words like offense and for like the two houses and Ephraim and Judah, and you will see that that is one of the primary metaphors in all of Scripture. But if you've got a whore church that tells you that a man can't have two wives, and oh, how dare you accuse the God of the Bible of being an adulterer? No, we're not. We're saying that his word allows it, and he showed us that he, in fact, said he was the husband of two wives. They were mine, Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel 23, and, and Jeremiah 3. You cannot, right, you cannot preach lies and draw conclusions based on lies and then expect to get the right answer. It is about as clear as anything in Scripture. So the more we understand, the more we begin to, uh, to rightly divide the word, the more we see it, the more immune we are, the more inured we are, the more protected we are from these lies, from this deception that Yeshua told us is going to happen. He came, not to bring peace, but a sword. There will be division. Those two sticks are not yet one. The two whoring wives have not yet acknowledged their whoring. They have not yet made teshuva. Those things that we're talking about that we're looking forward to have not yet happened. But what? He endures, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Along the way, so many elements, we talk about them every week. Come out of her, my people. Touch not the unclean thing. Be not deceived. Rightly divide the word of truth. Study to show yourselves approved. 
The information is there. We have tools. We have been blessed with levels of understanding of Hebrew. We don't have to, to be a Hebrew scholar in order to be able to use concordances and online electronic tools to show us, hey, how's that word used? We can look it up for ourselves. Again, it's not too hard for you. And uh, as, uh, as I mentioned frequently, if somebody tells you nobody can keep the law, that's another one of the big lies from the whore church. Read Deuteronomy chapter 30. You'll see all the pieces right there, too. Did I miss any questions? Any questions that um, we need to talk about on the screen? I'll mention it one more time for the recording here, too. Questions, comments, um, mark at marknywat.com. So marknywat.com is my website, www.marknywat.com. That's where this teaching will eventually be up. It'll be up first on Hebrew Nation Online, which is Hebrew Nation Radio. And they've been uh, posting them for quite a while. As you know, I do a number of other shows there. But uh, mark at marknywat.com is an email that will apply to uh, all of those. So I appreciate the feedback. Try to get everybody, if there's an ans- uh, a question, we'll try to get them answered. And if I don't answer you in reasonably short order, uh, send another one. Because every now and then, it doesn't happen too often, and I try to check it. But occasionally uh, somebody gets a Niwat spelled wrong. Uh, usually they'll get a warning on that one. Or uh, it ends up in a junk mail folder, or there's just so many that come in that I might miss them. But I'll try to get to all of them. Uh, let's pray. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad. I believe we come before you. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved your word, that you have given it to us, that we can, in fact, read it, study, show ourselves approved. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray. Help us to rightly divide your word of truth. Father, we pray that we would be counted worthy because you've told us to, that we would be counted worthy to escape these things that are coming upon the earth, and that we would be found doing your work when you return. We're not exactly sure when that is, but we know the times and the seasons. We can certainly recognize that things are coming to a head in so many ways. We recognize that we need your protection, so we stand on your word. We know that the things you have warned us about are coming to pass. We pray that it not be so in every case that a man's enemies would be those of his own house or our house, but we know that it's a risk and that these things are challenges that we face. So just as you guided Joseph with the test that uh, his brothers were eventually able to pass, that there would be right relationship and reconciliation. We pray that you would help us to do the same thing, to test the spirits, to uh, understand, to see truth. If there are those, Abba, that we need to separate ourselves from, help us to, uh, to know that. Give us eyes to see that we might literally wipe the dust off our feet as a witness against them and move on. Help us to have discernment, too recognize the wolves in sheep clothing, the the false preachers and false shepherds. Let your word, your Torah, be a lamp to our feet, that we would veer neither to the right nor to the left. We know many will come to you in that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do all these wonderful things. And your response, depart from me who are workers of Torahlessness of iniquity. I never knew you. We know, too, that you've warned us that the road is wide that leads to destruction, but it's narrow, and few there be that find it that leads to life and to you. So help us on all these things, Father, to rightly divide your word, to turn neither to the right nor to the left, but to walk the narrow path. And above all, we pray that we would be good and faithful servants unto you. And all this we ask in your set-apart name, because you are our King, our Savior, our Mashiach, our Redeemer, our help in times of trouble. You are Yahuwah Vitsivenu, Yahuwah Zediknu, Yahuwah Zevuot, Yahuwah Nisi, 
Our healer, Yahuwah Rapha, by your stripes, Abba, we are healed. By your blood we have been redeemed, and we thank you and praise you. You are our all-sufficient El Shaddai. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's close with the Aaronic blessing. We remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak and turn to Aaron and his sons and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Yisrael. Say to them, Yivarekaka Yahuwah varishmarekam, Yair Yahuwah panavaleka vichoneka, May Yahuwah bless you and keep you. May Yahuwah make his face to shine upon you. May Yahuwah let this countenance upon you and give you his shalom. Amen.